Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Kundalini, uh, Guru Nishan. And before we get started today, I want to actually share with you the intentions that I've written for why I started this podcast. I was born and raised in this community, and the people of our community matter to me. So the intentions for why this podcast is happening is, number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or have practiced and taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light-washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy or other support as needed, draw your own conclusions, and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and support you. So today I want to welcome our guest, Siri Narankar Singh Khalsa. He actually usually goes by Siri now. And he was born in 1967 in the Boston area. He's 53 years old. Um, his mother converted to 3HO Sikhism in 1976, then moved into ashrams in Los Angeles, New Mexico, Oregon. In 1981, he went to India and attended boarding school which is called GNFC. He graduated from India in 1985, went on to work for Akal Security. He was the bodyguard to Yogi Bhajan, 
went back to India and ran the school for a few years, came back to the United States while employed as a paramedic and was involved in caring for Yogi Bhajan until his death. So that is the short version of Sri's bio. And I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, first of all, to get us started, kind of what inspires you to, to speak out and share your story? I think I've been wanting to speak out for, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> you know, we've been having these conversations among well, I should say I've been having these conversations among my peers for a long time. Um, I think, you know, I just had a long conversation yesterday with a, you know, one of my closest friends that we, you know, we grew up in India together. And, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that we grew up in the Dharma and we were witnessing a lot of hypocrisies that we couldn't articulate and nobody was saying this is a hypocrisy, but when you're young, I think you watch and you listen to what adults are telling you and then you see what's happening and you're like, uh, that doesn't, but it wasn't like, Hey, Hey, we're going to call you out. We were just kids. So we're like, yeah, cool. Okay. Noted. And it's this, I think it's been this pervasive thing that we, at least for me, that I've seen, and I know I'm not the only one, but when it, when it comes in, 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 in drips, you, you know, you, you, you kind of get used to it. You kind of go, ah, that's just the way it is, you know? Okay. And maybe, maybe because I'm tougher than most, I went, yeah, it sucks, but I can deal with it. And I could deal with it. So it's kind of uh, like an inoculation. It's like slow over time. It normalizes and you, you get tougher at handling it. And then also it becomes a little bit more normal. It for sure becomes normal. You also just, you kind of take note of it. And like I said, you're young. You don't call it for what it is because you can't. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe when you're talking among your friends, you're like, hey, man, we have to eat banana curry at children's camp, but we know because we've been stealing the guide's food that there's Oreos and Fig Newtons and all kinds of other stuff down there. So it's like, what's up with that? Like, I don't like banana curry. I don't want to eat banana curry. That sucks. <laughs> and, and we all have our version of noticing that on micro and macro levels within our community, within oh, our sure. family and all those. Yeah. So thank you, because that's so true. It's like, throughout our life, we're noticing things, but it's not like we have a space to talk about it, except for maybe amongst one or two people around us, if that. But, but I also, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to have this conversation and make it a rant. Totally. Because I think yeah. about those guides when I was a little kid and I think, what was it like for them? You know, they're adults, they want to eat Oreos. Why shouldn't they eat Oreos? You know what I mean? Like they agreed to work at this camp and they're following the rules of whoever like laid down this thing, but they're like, yeah, but I don't want to do that. And I, that's a very human thing. Like I, yeah. I, I, 
I, I try really hard to also humanize everyone that I've had interactions with, even if those interactions weren't, weren't positive. I don't know what their story is. I don't, I've never walked in their shoes. You know, if there's, if there's 5,000 people in Sikh Dharma 3HO, there's 5,000 stories. No doubt about it. I can't even agree you know? with that more. Um, and so I may, you know, I can tell you, I learned a lesson early on that there wasn't a kid in India that I dealt with that was difficult. That as soon as I met their parents and saw the interaction, I had nothing but compassion for them. Because you realize I'm taking care of this kid and this kid is getting on my very last nerve. But this kid's like this because I've already seen the interaction with the parents and this happened at home. I'm just the one who gets to deal with it now. Sure. Um, and that we're all just products of, of our environment. And so when we can learn all to of us, every one of us, and that includes, you know, that includes the parents and that includes the, the people that I can't stand the people that, I would freely say that I would be hard pressed to swerve if they were in the road, <laughs> you know, I mean, but you know, they still have a story. They, they still have a mom and a dad and they still have a life and they still have kids. And, and so well, what I want to you know, say is that I don't know you in today's day and age. I have this encapsulated time of you from when I was eight to maybe 13 and oh, yeah. how funny is that, right? But I want to just say that what that rings to me is your compassionate heart, that you've obviously gone through so much of, of whatever process you've gone through to be able to say every experience, no matter how hard or every person, no matter how much they're hard to deal with, they have a story. And I have to at least recognize that much, even if I don't know what that is. Right. I mean, I, I it. I learned something at some point. Someone taught me this gem. They said, everyone is just doing the best they can. So true. And I, and I say that not for their sake. I say it for my sake so that I don't lose my mind and ax murder somebody. <laughs> you know, I am very capable of getting on a rant. I am very capable of being angry and I don't want to be that person. You and know, so I mean, if I could like do better, I would. If you could do better, I'm sure you would. So is you know, this I don't know very is this something that you've learned and mantras that like you've learned to be able to that has helped you from the experiences that you've had in that I've read in your bio is that what what I'm hearing right now like this is how you've yeah, I mean, you know you've had or the different experiences that you've wanted to kill somebody I would say you know I'm like I said I'm 53 I've school of hard knocks, you, you learn a few things along the way, even if you don't want to, <laughs> you know, I mean, just through trial and error, if you just keep banging your head against the wall, eventually you're going to figure out that hurts. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a better way. Um, and, and I'll be honest, I think the most growth that I had uh, as an individual and didn't even know it was um, when I was working as a paramedic full time. Um, you know, what I saw, you know, the people I dealt with, I, I learned so many valuable lessons and I learned to be much kinder to people because you don't know their story. And I would make assumptions about people and then you'd find out that it just wasn't the case. You know, it's like, 
you know, I, I mean, to give you an example, I would be angry that somebody overdosed on heroin as if they did this to me, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'd be acting indignant that I'm showing up like, why did you do this? You know, and I'm like taking care of them. And uh, their capacity to keep overdosing went beyond my capacity to remain angry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I finally got tired and it wore me down and it put me in a vulnerable place and I slowed down and I was able to say, hey man, yeah, my name's Siri, you're a paramedic, you're in a safe place, you overdosed, I got you, you know? And, and I just got to neutral. I wasn't like, I didn't have a bleeding heart for them, but I also wasn't judging them. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't judging them from a place of exhaustion. But what I found out is that they responded so much better when I didn't come to them with any baggage. Wow. They just opened up to me. And, you know, you could see this person for the human they are. You could see this person for the person that they are and the hell they were trapped in. And, you know, I, I wasn't there to try to think I could like talk them out of it or say the right thing. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the skies were going to open up and their life was going to be forever better. How about I just make this exchange with this other human being uh, net positive? What mm. they do with it, I have no control over. Mm. And so I started treating a lot of people like that. And it just worked better for me. I have no idea how the other people on the other end deal with it. They might walk away going, that guy's a kook. I have no idea. I just was less angry, which worked out better for me. <laughs> and I'm sure the world around you. Uh, yeah. On that note, I would really love to give the listeners context for why what you're sharing, I feel, means so much in terms of the growth of, of, of what it means to grow as a human and to learn from your experience as a paramedic and have that bleed over into relationships and the way that you form your life and live today. Um, um, take us back. Can you take us back to what it was like growing up in the, you know, it sounds like you were 10 when your mom yeah, so I, I had a I had a pretty cool childhood uh, when I was little. Um, my parents would quit their jobs every fall, and we would move to Vermont, and they skied all winter, and then we would move back to the beach in Massachusetts every summer. Um, I grew up in the ocean, on the water. I had a great life. I had grandparents who were just, I mean, you know, my my all of my relatives. They're they're just wonderful people. No tragedies. You know, very accepting. Um, I was the first grandchild born on my father's side. So I was called the super child. Everybody treated me beautifully. <laughs> I mean, all the kids were, but I had a special place since I was the first one with my grandparents. Uh, and then my parents divorced when I was about five. And my mom moved around a bit. She was a, uh, a nurse and she went back to school at the University of New Hampshire. And there she started taking yoga classes and we went to our first solstice. We came back from solstice and moved to New Mexico. That was a shock. You know, I, I, I was, I'm like, we're moving, we're moving away from my father, from my family, from, you know, everyone I know. And like we get, we took the train from Boston to uh, Los Angeles. It was the first place we went. So not New Mexico, Los Angeles. Then we went there. And uh, I remember, you know, little things like I ordered a hamburger on the train and my mother says, okay, so this is the very last hamburger you're ever going to eat. I'm like, what, wait, what, <laughs> why these are good. <laughs> you know, you just, what you learn to roll with this stuff, you know? And, um, wow. You're a I remember when I went to go meet 
the searching stop for the first time to get my name. I'm like, why do I need a name? I have a name. It seems perfectly good. You know, like, like I remember being genuinely confused by this. Mm. Not angry, not upset. Just like, whoa, like I love my mother. So my mother's not going to hurt me. So this is like, this isn't a scary thing. But what the hell is this? So I meet this guy. I wasn't particularly intimidated or scared or anything. I was just like, okay, that's my name. That's strange. Um, and you just kind of ease into it. And I met a lot of people in the Dharma that were friendly and nice. And then I met people that were cold and indifferent. Um, and, you know, the Dharma is just a collection of people. And the assholes were going to be assholes no matter where they go. <laughs> And the nice people were going to be nice people no matter where they went. And, you know, you run into those people. You run in. And as a kid, you don't remember the words is, is my memory. I remember the people who were genuine and kind to me. Mm. And I remember the people who were dismissive to me. Mm. That's what I remember. Mm. Not the words, not the anything. I just remember the people who took the time, you know. And you don't, you know, obviously when you're a kid, you just don't have that, that vocabulary. Right. But you, you. You're, you know your feelings, you know, little kids are open and they watch and they pay attention and they, you know, I have two daughters and when they were little, they were a better judge of character than I was. If my daughters didn't like you, get out. I mm -hmm. want nothing to do with you. If my daughters like you. I'm like, all right, you got a shot. <laughs> I trust, I trust little kids and their first impressions and feelings more than I trust most adults. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> So, you know, then uh, I, I, what was, you know, particularly difficult, and I could go into all kinds of little anecdotal stories, and everyone my age has them. Like when we ended up in Española, the entire ashram was on a fast for breakfast, <laughs> right? This was a new one for me. It was <laughs> plain chapatis, plain yogurt, and raw onions. And I'm like nine, 10 years old. And they're like, this is breakfast. I'm like, this is not breakfast. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but this is not breakfast. <laughs> and I just remember the fanaticism in those days of like, you know, had to get up and take a cold shower. I, you know, my mom couldn't afford our own apartment. So we were living in the ashram. I lived in the single men's room. And I remember like there was, you know, one of the kids I know, his dad who at the time wasn't his dad yet, wasn't even married yet. He was, you know, he was in school studying for these tests and like he wouldn't let me go to bed at night until I had done enough yoga. Couldn't go to sleep until I'd done yoga. You know, had to get up in the morning and take a shower, had to do sadhana. I'm a physical guy. I like doing things. I was an active kid. I don't like being told what to do mm. by anybody, mm. you know? And the moment you say, do this or else, I will always choose or else. I, I will call your bluff every time. Um, so that was weird. I didn't so like that. You're what age at this time? 10. Ten. You know, okay. here's the thing. It's kind of a blur. So I went LA, New Mexico, I think back to LA for a little while, then Oregon, then back to LA, then back to New Mexico. I went to a different school every year of my life until I went to India. India was the most stable port part of my childhood. 
Like I appreciated that part of India. At least I knew where I was going to school next year and I wasn't going to have to make new friends. Mm. Um, that was because your mom was moving ashram so much? Oh no, I was living with guardians. I stopped <laughs> living with my mom from the time I was about 10. Oh, so you're living with guardians and that you're getting sent to different guardians or your guardians ended up moving? Different guardians. How many different guardians did you have? One, two, three, four, four I can think of. And then where is your mom this whole time when you have, when you're off with guardians? She was in LA. In LA. Working for Saram. What, who is that? Dr. Saram. Okay. What what does she do? Part of that time. Part of that time she was just working as a nurse. I mean, you know, my mom was struggling. She was a, she was a single mom nurse working hard. I had, she had no time. I I would have been a latchkey kid wherever I was. And I'm not making excuses for my mom. I'm just saying she made decisions of those decisions. And I know my mom thought she was doing the right thing. Yeah. The best thing she could do. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that, you know, growing up with all these guardians, I was never abused. Nobody beat me. I was not sexually abused, but I was neglected. Like, and neglected in the way that I would say, like, I was clothed, I was fed, my well, you know, my physical well being was not in question. Nobody gave a shit if I did my homework. Nobody gassed how my day at school was. Nobody gave me a hug. Nobody cared it was my birthday because they didn't know. Uh, to this day, I don't celebrate my birthday. What's the point? Like, you know, like it became a day that didn't mean anything. Um, and they weren't mean. They weren't like, they weren't purposely not asking how my day was. I wasn't their kid. And I'll bet if I went back to talk to these guardians, they didn't even want me. I'll bet the searching sub told them you're taking a kid or the head of the ashram told them you're taking a kid. What was interesting is I lived with the head of the ashram in Española. So that was also interesting to watch that power dynamic as people came in and out of the house and they ran things and told people what was up. And then they would, you know, whoever it was, you know, people would leave and then it was, you know, then I heard the conversations about the people that just left and you're just this kid watching going, Hmm, all right, this is how this works. And you're getting yeah. all this by 10. You're soaking this up 10, 11, 12. Um, 10 to, you know, 10 to 13. 10 I to lived 13. with Guardian. 13, I went to India. So can I ask you a question? If you're very knowing that you don't like being told what to do, I could imagine in this atmosphere, you're being told what to do quite a bit. I did. And I got very good at just getting quiet and doing what I wanted to do. If you challenge me, I'll challenge you back. But if I can just take the passive route where it's like, I'm not going to like be meek, but if I can just quietly walk off over here and do whatever I want to do and you're none the wiser, why wouldn't I? So what did that look like as a kid? How did that look like when as a rebellion uh, uh, your silent rebellion or whatever you get on your bike and pedal say if what they can't find you you get on your bike and pedal if they can't find you <laughs> you come back where were you you were supposed to I'm like oh i didn't know i'm sorry <laughs> we all learned how to lie we got good at it mm. we all learned how to lie we all learned how to 
to uh, make time for ourselves. And I, you know, I wasn't the only kid living with guardians. Like when I was in Española, there was, there was probably seven or eight of us. And, and they were good friends of mine. Like we had a good time. Every time, you know, we, if we could disappear, like we were playing in the irrigation ditch, we were climbing around in the old barn, we were throwing, you know, chunks of dirt at each other. We were building jumps and seeing who could jump over the irrigation ditch. And eventually somebody was going to eat shit and be like, oh God, I, we should have seen that coming. Oh, well, you know, because 12 year old boys aren't the brightest. <laughs> Would you get in trouble or was there punishment or anything like this? that you remember um, you just create this um no because when you know if we did get punished we just it's like oh you guys aren't okay you have to go do you know push-ups or yoga and you're like okay because you could do it you know what you want me to do 108 frogs i can do 108 frogs okay so you just bust out the frogs i could <laughs> my ability to keep doing that what i figured out as a kid is I could take punishment longer than you were interested in punishing me. Who wants to stand over some kids and make them do a punishment, watch them dig a ditch or watch them do some work. Most parents are like, or most adults were like, this is stupid. I don't want to be doing this. And they'd be like, all right, don't do it again. And you're like, all right. <laughs> it, 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 if you paid attention and you figured out the game, it wasn't that hard to play it. I was going to say, it sounds like you, you really play, plugged into the power dynamic of it right away. Cause as a kid, you learned it, you watched it and then you knew how to like play it to your own. Yeah, those are my memories. I mean, I, I remember though, you know, I remember being lonely, mm. you know, as far as having someone who actually, you know, an adult who, you know, was going to give me a hug and, and, and really genuinely care about me. I'm, I don't mean to make it sound like it was all good. I understand. You know, and, um, and, you know, I want to be very clear that my experience is my experience. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say anybody else had it, should have had it good or because I did, they should, or, you know, this is just my story. Um, we also process things in our own ways. And that's totally fine. What I love about how you're sharing it is you're sharing it the way that it is for you. And that's all that this really yeah. is. And that's all you can actually share. And so I, I appreciate the lens because... It's, it's, school it's was hard real say me tell me that school. out of school was easy public school was hard i went to public schools my whole life mm. it was a lot of fist fights it was a lot of getting made fun of for your turban it was a lot of getting made fun of like things like you know if my if my teacher found out i was a vegetarian in the 70s you got sent to the school nurse because you had to be sickly and unhealthy you know they looked at you different they treated you different I mean, I, I got into fistfights in my classroom in front of my teacher and they did nothing about it. So either you learned to stand up and start throwing some fists back real quick or you were just going to get a beaten. And I'm talking, you know, like in the case of Espanola, when I went to public school there, I, I was in fistfights probably three, three out of five days a week. Mm -hmm, truth. You learn how to give a beating and you learn how to take a beating. And this was American public school. What I got at school in America was way worse than anything I got in India. And this it is was way worse than anything I saw in India. Because if you weren't in school, you still had to walk home from school. So not all your, not all your fights took place on the schoolyard. 
you know, um, and the yeah, constant. My oldest brother is your age, and he has stories of getting chased home from school, and and why India was good for him because it got him out of that public school scene. So anyway, thank you for that because it's yeah. a really important lens here that 70s and 80s wearing a turban, being a vegetarian is a very different context than the popularity of it today. And even the last you two know, decades. As soon as, in 1979, when they took all the hostages at the American embassy in Tehran, you know, then we were called, a, uh, you know, um, um, Khomeini, Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini. You know, it was all, it was, it was brutal, you know. Americans didn't know what Sikhs were. Sikhs weren't on the world stage. Nobody, you know, it was just pure ignorance. Now, I remember walking into a, a diner in Georgia, you know, and I remember a guy turned around and looked me up and down. You'll have to excuse the language, but I'm going to say it. It's probably going to offend some people. But this white guy at the diner turns around, looks me up and down and says, I don't believe it. It's a white nigger. I was like, oh, okay, we're going to go. You know, I mean, it was like you, you were not, it wasn't just name calling. It was sometimes like, okay, this is not a good place to be. Let's go. <laughs> you know, and you just, you learned to pay attention. And I'm sorry if I offended anybody actually using the word, but, you know, it doesn't have the same effect, you know, if, if you're not you know, and it's like, I don't care what he called me. I heard the menace in his voice. I heard I was very unwelcome and it was time to go, mm. you know? All right, so keep and, it going. Uh, then from public yeah. school, how, so how long, the, are there more things you want to share with us from the times of the Guardians? Yeah, you know, public school was just, and the, the brutal part was, you know, one particular brutal incident was they tried to make me wear Bana to school. <laughs> like turban was enough. Don't make me wear tights and a dress. Like that's not gonna work. So I destroyed all my bana. Oh, I destroyed it. Like I'm not going to school. I'm dropping out right now. I'm done. Wow. Yeah. yeah. This is why you're so actually it was bad enough that the reason I went to Espanola the year before I went to India was I was finishing the sixth grade in Los Angeles. And in my district, I was going to go to this place called Louis Pasteur Junior High. And I went there, you know, with my sixth grade class to go look at it, right? They, they took us on a field trip. And I got so, I got made fun of so bad. Not only was I the only kid with a turban, but I was one of a handful of white kids. And it was brutal. And I remember calling my mom and saying, I'm dropping out of school right now if you send me there. I'm not going. I, I you know, I know when it's, when it's, you know, I know when I'm beat and that place is going to beat me. I'm out. <laughs> so, you know, an alternative had to be found. And you're in so, sixth grade at this point. That was to visit the, the, the seventh grade, right? The middle yeah. school. Okay. I was in, I was in sixth grade because I got into a fight with my fifth grade teacher, a physical altercation with my fifth grade teacher, who I swear to you had a problem with me because I had a turban and picked on me all year until I couldn't take it anymore. Wow. physical altercation walked home in the middle of the day and my mom says what are you doing home and I told her what happened she went down and talked to the principal principal you know that doesn't work I don't know what happened to that teacher but I never went back to that classroom they just moved me up a grade wow. <laughs> <Go figure. laughs> yeah. now during these different 
situations are you interacting like is you are you just interacting with your mom and your guardian or are you interacting with yogi bhajan this young or no oh yogi bhajan wanted me to come to Das ashram in los angeles and play chess with him every afternoon and so you did that as a kid i wasn't interested oh you weren't interested okay so you didn't he'd see me he'd have me come by and say hi i said hi but i didn't have much of a relationship with him you know, he told me, think of me as your grandfather. It was, there was, the, the, but there wasn't really anything meaningful. I knew who he was. He knew who I was. You know, my mom living in LA was definitely like on his radar. Um, you know, there's pictures of me with the surgeon's hub when I was a kid. There was pictures of me like dressed up, sitting with him and like head of the ashram, like overseeing a wedding or, you know, stuff like you're just like a cute little kid wearing all the bana and they're like, sit there. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever. You don't know what it means. Sure. Um, but, you know, the only other thing I'll say from all of this, this period is the highlight of the entire year was solstice every year. Because all of us from all over the country that were having similar experiences, Rama and Kirtan from Alabama, Gertesh from Oregon, Sadhu from Texas, uh, you know, go down the list. We were from all over the country, all going to public school all having a pretty rough go of it mm. and we'd all show up at solstice and we had so much fun mm. just hanging with your friends who were your same friends every year and then children's camp afterwards and children's camp was its own set of stories and we dealt with a lot of crazy guides um you know i remember at solstice literally hearing you know announcements at breakfast you know toward the end of solstice you know, Satnam is, if, if there's anybody who doesn't have a job this summer and you're interested in working at children's camp, we're still looking. I mean, they were literally taking hanger-ons, you know, to come be a guide. Like, you know, I think the, like the, the whole like interview process was, oh, you don't have a job this summer? Great. <laughs> this it is was, so true. Like, this is the way that people paid for their classes or their yeah. attendance and like the script of the bottle bottom was the children's camp leftovers and you got crazies just you know, what we off. did though what we did at children's camp i mean we had fun we ran around we did our thing you know we were the older boys which we weren't that old but we were older and we kind of got left alone more or less we spent monday through friday devising how to break into the kitchen at night and steal food because we were always hungry. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this was a, a constant ongoing conversation all day, every day about different ways, windows we could go through, doors we could, locks we could break, you name it. I remember at Romer's farm, we actually got caught stealing food. So somebody had the brilliant idea that they were gonna tie us up, like our hands in the basement where all the food was. So we promptly untied ourselves and gorged ourselves until they came back and we pretended we were tied up again. And then like, we were just like, you people are so dumb. Okay, no problem. <laughs> I mean, like, to qualify this, these people were the yoga students. They were the people yeah. that were starting to practice and be followers. And the adults in the atmosphere were people attending tantrics, people attending lectures and people attending those, yoga classes, correct? Some of those people who tied me up, I still know them today. <laughs> okay. They have no idea that I think they're that dumb or were that dumb. <laughs> and they're beautiful people. They're beautiful people. They went on to become parents. They have great kids. 
you know, but I'm just like, yeah, I knew you when you were in your twenties and you weren't too bright. <laughs> you were kind of gullible. Um, so, you know, children's camps were kind of rough, but the one thing that I got as one of the older boys is we got taken backpacking every weekend, usually mm -hmm. like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we had a couple of guides that we really loved that really were outdoorsmen and wanted to impart that knowledge into us. And those were the highlights of our summer because once we got away from children's camp and the ashram, we had a diet that was much more appropriate because they were like, well, these kids need a high calorie diet. They're backpacking all day. So we had like the best food. We made it ourselves, but it was so good. And these guys had a genuine love for the outdoors, for the woods. And once we got out there, they were like, oh, you think you can cross that river? Go for it. You want to slam into each other in sleeping bags? You want to run around, play capture the flag in the wilderness? Try not to get lost. Like they just turned us loose and we got to have this amazing experience. And that's what, you know, I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. Like I am so grateful to those guys for having done that for us, for giving me this very, very, very mm. deep rooted appreciation for the outdoors, for doing outdoor things. And I can tell you that when we got away from sort of children's camp and the ashram and all of that, they were different too. Interesting. Like yoga and the ashram and all that, they may have been into that, but this is where they really wanted to be. Mm. And this is what they loved to do. And this is, you know, one summer, they, one of the guys got a van, built a platform in it, put 10 of us in it, 10 boys, and there was two adults. And we spent six weeks more driving through the four corners. We'd go to a KOA, take a shower, go to a pizza, eat dinner, go get food. And then we'd go backpacking for four or five days. And then we'd all pile back in the van and we each had a cubby under the floor. I mean, we were so happy. We had <laughs> such a good time, such a good time. And we had to get up and do sadhana in the morning. And I'll tell you what, didn't mind. In that context, in that setting, like, all right, we'll get up and do some yoga. And, you know, it was mostly stretching and short little 11 minute meditation or maybe five minute, who knows, I was young enough. And then we would just walk all day and we were in the wilderness. And I'm so grateful to those guys, you know. Um, beautiful, that's beautiful. So then we went to India now, and I didn't want to go to India. Wait, just for clarity, that was in New Mexico and that kind of got organized randomly because of those people that just like the wilderness and kind of really. I'm sure they came people? to children's camp and said, we want to, you know, we want to do this program for these boys. Got it. Because we were by far the biggest trouble they had at children's camp. We were the ones locking each other inside of outhouses and tipping them over. We were the ones who'd get our hands on fireworks and blow things up. We were the ones that were like, you know, stabbing each other with something because we were bored. Because when you turn 12 year old boys loose with nothing to do all day, they break things and they break each other. That's because, just one of the, the laws. Adults are busy doing tantric all day. This, this was, this was after solstice. Oh, okay. During solstice, we had a great time. We'd break into the bazaar and steal warrior shoes. We would, you know, play <laughs> capture the flag all day long. We would, you know, we had so much fun. I never did tantric. I hate tantric. The few days of tantric I've ever done in my life have been days of my life I can't get back. Um, I never got any good feelings from it. And I've never been much into the yoga and the meditation. Mm. The teachings of the Sirsing Sab were not anything that ever 
I can't tell you how many lectures I stood there and was his bodyguard. And I never listened to a single thing he said. Mm. I've never read a lecture. I'm not against it. I'm not anti. It just wasn't my thing. Okay. Before we keep jumping forward, go to the India part. You said you did, you're in New Mexico. Okay. You didn't I didn't want to go to India. Okay. Right. Most of my friends wanted to go. I didn't want to go. Um, they dangled military school in front of me and I was super excited to do that. And then they took that away and sent me to India. <laughs> I was pissed. That is not where I wanted to go. Military school is where I wanted to be. Um, so, but I was psyched to be hanging out with all my friends. And the mayhem started the moment we all gathered in the airport. Like it was full on. It was just messing around, horseplay. You're with your friends, you're super comfortable. Uh, I can't remember, I think there was like 50 of us who went the first time. Uh, Spoon and there was three kids that were already there. They had started at the beginning of the school year. We showed up in the middle of the school year. And India was just such a shock, mm. such a shock, good and bad, right? So I remember landing in New Delhi at, you know, whatever it was, two in the morning and like the plane is stuffy and hot and you can't wait to get off. And this was the old stairs that go down to the tarmac and it's July in New Delhi and you're thinking the plane's hot and then you get near the door and you're just recoiling from the heat coming through the door and the smell of India. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. The plane's really nice. I like it here. <laughs> oh, can we hold on a minute? <laughs> um, we went to, we landed in Delhi. This is all new to us. There was no other kids already there to be like, hey, let me show you how this works. The follow on kids all had like a guide. They all had a kid who could show them the ropes. We had no idea. So we were in Delhi for, I don't know, maybe a day or two. And then we took the train to Amritsar. And then we were in Amritsar at the Golden Temple for, I want to say 10 days or something. And then we went to school in Missouri, took the train to Dardanelle and then taxis up to Missouri. Um, it was all so new. Mm. I mean, it was wild. It was crazy. And we so quickly figured out that we could do anything. We could exploit the language barrier. We could, we, you know, the adults were jet lagged out of their mind and tired. And we were 13. And, you know, I think we had like, you know, so much Coke, so much coffee, all the stuff we were never allowed to have. You could just get your hands on I mean, We were wired just wired. I, I remember things that blew my mind. Like I remember being a 13 year old boy, we pull into the train and train station, dare dude. And we see monkeys for the first time and they're all over the train station. And, you know, if you see a monkey and you're 13 years old, you, you throw something at it. That's what you do. <laughs> so as a 13 year old boy, I'm eating an apple and my friends are with me. I was like, Oh, watch this, watch this, watch this. And I throw this apple core at the monkey as hard as I can. And the monkey is staring at me and he never breaks eye contact. And he just goes, Whack! and he just catches the apple core and he keeps staring at me and he just starts eating the apple. I was like, oh, and as boys, we were just like, amazing. <laughs> like, that was India. Like everything was just amazing. Amazing. Um, and it was fun. I had a lot of fun. 
until school started. Mm. <laughs> Once again, school. Mm. If you left me and my friends to our devices, we had a good time. We were, we were just, we were so happy to be with each other. We were, we were just having a good time is my memory of it. Um, and then school started. You could barely understand your teachers. And here's the crazy part. Um, we had two adults that brought us over and then they left and Nautic Dave wasn't there yet. And I remember standing on- How there many was no, kids, how many no of you were there? How many, of you, how many of you are there? I think there was like 50 of us. There's 50 kids from the US, Yeah, but no US adults at all. Nope. Nautic Dave didn't show up for a few months. So it's and we didn't even know we didn't even know he was coming. Really? Just the teachers that are Indian teachers. Yeah. So I remember on being on the main field at our campus, the boys' campus. I remember those two adults said goodbye, and I watched them walk away. And I remember thinking, that is my only connection to the U.S. I don't know how to call the U.S. I don't know how to write a letter to the U.S. I don't know anything. That's, that is my only connection to the U.S. that just walked away. That was a strange feeling. Wow. That was like, okay, I really am on my own. I am really on my own. Um, but then you just got into the routine. You know, you, you, you quickly figured out how things worked. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the teachers were quick to hit you. So you quickly figure out what the rules are so you don't get hit. You know, you, you, the, 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 the beating, some people would call it a physical abuse, whatever you want to call it. That it was far worse from the Indian teachers than it ever was from the Americans. Mm. And here's the crazy part. This was a wealthy upper class Indian boarding school. This is how 1.2 billion people live. We didn't land in the little shop of horrors. This, you know, there was 13 other boarding schools in the, in in this little town that we were in and they were all the same. These are the standard is what you're saying. This is This is normal. My classmates had money. They came from good families. If you had money, you sent your kids to Missouri to go to school in Hill Stations. This was not an orphanage. Hmm. This was Indian education. A teacher says something, you say, yes, sir. You talk back, you get hit. You lie, you get hit. They think you lie, you get hit. Hmm. You don't show enough deference, you get hit. This was, this was Indian education. And if you didn't cower, they really didn't know what to do with you. And I didn't cower very well. Mm. <laughs> by my senior year, I remember I got slapped really hard by an English teacher because I politely challenged him. And I'm looking at him and he slapped me hard. And I'm like, you can slap me again. It won't change that I'm right. So he slapped me again. I said, how many more times do you want to do this? I didn't even flinch. I didn't give a shit. Mm. Because I knew it freaked him out more 
for me to not be afraid of him and just stare at him. And he knew that the only thing stopping me from hurting him is because I didn't want to. That was way more powerful to me. That's how I got over on my teachers. Mm. I just looked at him like, what are you going to do to me? You can't. Like, and I realized that was not the case for everybody. But I could take physical pain and didn't care. And I, it was so heady to me to look at a teacher and be like, you can't do shit to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it sounds like your experience had trained you in resilience for so long already. It's um, like, I'm literally looking at a teacher and saying, you have done your worst and you couldn't break me. So what, what's next? What do you got left in your bag of tricks? I didn't think so. So there's all these kids there and then you're saying no guides that are U.S. And then, yeah. then who comes? It sounds like Nanakdev comes. Nanakdev showed up. The interesting thing about Nanakdev is I knew Nanakdev before India. I used to hang out with him at the, the ashram in Manhattan Beach. Okay. He was a super fun guy. And he that's, was so... I, th- I think I remember them from the Phoenix ashram too early. He was such a nice guy. Like, and, yeah, super friendly. We would get in his car and he would like drive around like a maniac and do all these hard turns and throw us around in the back seat, kind of the, the crap that boys like and think are cool. And he was always good for jokes. And we'd stay up late and watch, you know, old, you know, what was not old then, but like a rat patrol, which was like this old, like British army, world war two TV show. Like he was, he was this really nice guy. And then he came to India mm. and I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> But I had an easy time dealing with him in a way that most people didn't. Um, give, give us some understanding of what that means to the listener that doesn't understand the context. I understood what made him tick and I knew how to not go against the grain. I knew how to do what I wanted to do and kind of fly below the radar. I knew the things that would set him off. I knew what you could not do to Nanakdev was you could never challenge his authority publicly. If you challenged his ego openly in front of everyone, and that I'm, I'm guessing now, because I, I obviously it was not in his head, but it sure looked to me like if you undermined his authority publicly, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't have that. He, he couldn't handle that. Sure. You know, he would famously say to the older boys, you get into an argument with him and, you know, maybe your logic was more sound and he didn't have a good reason to say no. And then he would end it with, well, my ego is bigger than yours. So I win. Go away. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> Did you just say that? <laughs> um, so not again, but I understand by Yogi Bhajan to India and he's like the head guy. That is the guy. guy the only guy. Okay, so he's the only adult. It was him and his wife. Okay. It was him and his wife until the next year. Like, so they came. We had a winter break. I think Nanakdev showed up in like, we showed up in July. Nanakdev probably didn't show up till October. Okay. Something like that. Maybe September. Gurpreets, who were the next couple that showed up, they didn't show up until the following school year, six months later, more. 
So you're arriving in the or, or first, then he comes maybe October-ish, and then he's the only one there until the Gurpreets come, which is probably like the next school year, either the end of summer or something like that. So essentially, yep. Nana Dev's the only adult in this Indian school. All the American kids are there. Inter there's the girls' school and the guys' school, but there's his no wife. His wife went to the school. Gurnamkar went to the school, the girls' school. Gosh, I don't know for sure the time period, but I'm pretty sure I knew Nana Dev and Gurnam and, and their kids down, uh, in Phoenix Ashram when I was a kid. Um, yeah. And I also had really great memories of their old family. So he gets sent over, they get sent over there. It's the only two of them. She's at Shangri-La with the girls. He's with you. And if, and I don't know much because I didn't go to school in India, but my brother is your age. So I know you guys know each other well. And um, Are you kidding? He was my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just trying to name it out loud so that the listeners have context because they don't know the history per se. Um, so Nana Dev is there alone. And so he has to have some sort of order as he's doing. And my understanding is that you were a part of that order, that you were a that part was, of kind of- That was much later. Okay, so so give us, so keep going. I'm just trying to- That was much later. Okay, so, so let us when know. When he first showed up, I was in, it was my first year. And there was a couple of boys that were in a couple of grades above me. So I wasn't like the senior. I wasn't one of the seniors yet. Um, so Nanakev shows up that winter, we're not going home. So like, I didn't go home for five years. I never went home. We were, we, and that was normal for all of us for pretty much. The, 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 few the few kids who went home over break, that was, th those were few and far between. Mm. So, the first half of the winter, we went, we, the school ended, everybody left and we all went to the girls school. The boys did too, like consolidated all the Americans at the, at the, the, the school. And that's when we really got to know Nanak Dave and Gurnamkar because now we were dealing with them directly all the time. Right. right? Um, and there was some firsts for me. Nanak Dave and I had our battles. I, I, anybody who doesn't know this, anybody who went to India and remembers the Ego Rock, yes, that was created for me. <laughs> well, tell us how the Ego Rock got started. So behind the girls' school was this hill. At the top of the hill were these old ruins that we called Hotel California because it looked like the cover of the Eagles album. And we used to like to go up there and mess around. And, you know, Missouri's beautiful where we went to school. I mean, it's in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's very pretty. Alpine environment. You know, I loved it. I was very happy in the evergreens. You know, most of us just loved running around in the hills. And um, so I was just constantly not, just not doing what Nanak Dave wanted me to do. Mm. And I was smart enough to, to not give him a reason to really come down on me but I also wasn't afraid of him and I didn't really, I, I was just kind of doing my own thing with my friends. I, and it wasn't like some master plan. I wasn't like, Oh, I know how to do this. It's a sixth sense that kids have like most of them know how to stay out of danger. So you do. And not Dave didn't like something I said, and I was really good at being like passive aggressive and dropping some comment and just, just infuriating him. And finally he said, I had an ego. And it was massive. 
And he went and found a big rock and he said, pick it up, paint it. And I had to paint it and write ego on it. And then I had to carry it up the, up the hill to the ruins and back down. And I had to do that however many times. And then that became a thing, right? I was the first one who got punished with it. And then that became a regular thing, you know, ego rock for you. And it was like, I guess, physical exertion and just a pain in the ass and hard work. And my understanding is Nanak gave, you know, he grew up, his father was like, had a ranch. He worked on a ranch and construction. And Nanak Dave was a big believer in, in, in the physicality of things, mm. you know, making us tired and things like that. So I know I've heard rumors of stories and people talking about the ego rock or whatever. I just don't know if people know that that was. Yeah, I love that, that you're sharing it because other, yeah, other people have their experiences with that in its evolution and, and their. You've uh, heard of the ego rock? Well, I, I remember a Zoom store earlier this year where somebody, you know, it was quite terrifying for them too and the pain of it. And so like, I want to honor that that can move on yeah. from really terrible, but it's really nice to know this origin story too. I also and think- for me, it was just like, it yeah. was a pain in the ass and it was another version of like, oh, I have to go up that hill. I bet he won't even know if I went all the way to the top. <laughs> but now I get to be away from everybody. Sounds good to me. Um, it sounds like by this time you've gotten really good at reading adults and knowing how to kind of like masterly we all did. maneuver. We were such a pain in the ass for non-active. Mm. We were all a bunch of smart asses. Like we, we knew how it worked. We, you know, I'll say this about non-active. I saw in my age group, I only saw him hit, like really hit coming by and whacking me on the back of a leg with a, with a gutka stick because I wasn't moving fast enough or jumping high enough. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that to me, that doesn't rise to the level of abuse. I'm not going to take away somebody else calling that abuse. Um, I, I would rather you just share the experiences that happened to you as opposed to. Right, I, I am. I am. But I, I also, anybody watching this, I want to make sure I'm not, I'm not projecting my, shit on anybody else i'm not trying to say this is not right. but i i saw him hit five people like really hit three boys two girls i don't condone hitting girls ever i'm not saying it was right i'm not even condoning hitting boys i'm not saying it's right but i knew each one of them was going to get hit before it happened because i publicly watched i watched each of them challenge his authority publicly very disrespectfully I'm not saying it excused what he did, but for me, it was like watching. It was just like, oh, no, 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 please don't. Oh, don't, 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 don't do that. Don't. Oh, God. Oh, shit. Because you knew what was coming. Which I'd seen it before. And I fully appreciate that those kids probably had had enough or were fed up or having a bad day or maybe were just particularly sad that day, missing their parents or God knows what was going through their head. I'm not accusing anybody of being stupid. I'm not, you know, I don't know. I'm just telling you what I saw and I'm not excusing it and I'm not justifying it. And it was I, not cool what he did. If I heard you correctly, you saw him cane more, but in the standard of what you consider a, a abuse is what you just named. But there was more of a, a, more hitting, but it's not necessarily the way that you would standardize it as what some, what you're, what you, felt would be abuse 
Is that what you? Yeah. Said? I mean, okay. I'm just yeah. trying to I get mean, a tone for the atmosphere totally. because sure. it helps us kind of feel. And I also am getting a full on read that you're reading the environment very strongly. You're reading him very strongly. And even your peers like, oh, don't do that. Uh, right. But as a kid, you're not able to say anything. Right. It's just happening. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, it's it's as a kid, as a teenager, even you're just like, oh, God, why did you do that? I know what's going to happen now. Sure. Like, like th th there, there is a very clear cause and effect here. You know, you're how you don't old even have time to like think about whether or not it's okay. You're just like, you know, just like there's gravity. <laughs> you did that. So this is now going to happen. You know, and, and, you know, I wasn't thinking about the morality of it. I wasn't thinking about, no, that's not where your brain goes. You're just like, this is the reality we live in. This is the set of rules that we live by. If you choose to step outside of those, there are consequences. I'm not even getting into the good and bad or right or wrong of it. That's just survival. That is knowing your environment and knowing how to avoid danger. Okay, but what we've already heard so far is that we're talking about extreme survival mode of being, right? Already everyone's in, in their own extreme survival and everyone handles survival mode very differently. So I can appreciate what you're sharing and this is how you're handling survivor mode. You're assessing and you're noticing and you're also creating a formula of this is what you do and don't do and you've calculated this in your own split second reality. I would only push back a little bit and say it wasn't even extreme. I've been in extreme. For okay. me, extreme is people trying to kill you. This wasn't extreme. Well, Sri, let me just pause and just say what I'm trying sure. to offer is a way for the listeners to take this in. Yep. Okay. I get that. I'm trying to slow it down so that we have context for what's mm -hmm. actually being said because you're sharing your lens. And we're wanting yep. to get a lens on the atmosphere that's happening. And as much as the way you might handle it is naming all the ways that it's best to maneuver a situation like this, somebody else might yep. not calculate that way. And so I'm trying yep. to kind of paint the atmosphere yep. so that I'm getting a clear understanding of what your lens is setting us up to feel and understand you more, yep. you more. Yeah. I just, I, I guess all I'm saying is it wasn't something you had to consciously think about. Well, you when just, we're in survival mode, I don't think we're consciously thinking about anything. I think we're just in survival yeah. mode. That's possible. I'm, I, I'm not enough of a, of a, um, I'm not well-versed enough in all of that to really, to really comment on that. It was, you know, so not a gift could be really hard that way. You know, on the other hand, I will say as, as one of the boys, you know, Nanak Dave also did some stuff for us that I really appreciate. You know, he, he recognized our need to work out. So he, he made it possible for us to lift weights. He made it, he organized a lot of sports. He, he got us into Gutka. He, you know, he took us on trips that most normal people would never even consider doing. I mean, he was by himself as an adult and he took 30 boys from one side of India to the other, basically on a train to go to these faraway Gurdwaras and participate in this stuff and come back. I mean, those were really fantastic adventures that we had in all these cities that we'd never been to. And, you know, we had some crazy stories. Like 
half of us were off the train when the train started to leave the station and we're running down the tracks and Nani Dave's on the train and me and your are off the train. We were like the two oldest ones going, Oh shit, we're not going to get on the train. What do we do with all these kids? We don't have enough money. Like we're in Benares. We don't know this town. We're, we're like hundreds. We're, we're, we're a thousand miles away from any town we know. Like, how's this going to work? And then somebody hits the, the brake and like, the rest of the kids get off with Nanakev and then we end up in, you know, stuck in this town for two days so we can get on the next train. And like, I think back on it now as an adult, if I had taken care of those kids, like what a crazy scene. And that guy was crazy enough to take us all on these trips and have these adventures. And, you know, we went to, we went to Amritsar for the second half of the winter and, you know, we ended up doing these tours and it was it was amazing. We were full on rock stars. It was really bizarre, surreal. So here's a bunch of American kids that do Gutka, which at the time was a dead art in India. Very few people did it outside of the Nihangs. And we're on a bus traveling around Punjab, going to three or four gurdwaras and colleges and functions a day and showing this off and hundreds of people are crowding and pushing to see us. And there was three girls with us and they did a Kirtan program and then we did the Gutka and it's like, it was really wild and we had a lot of fun traveling and we got to see a side of India that was amazing. Um, and he, you know, he made that possible. He made that possible. Well, it sounds like he was really under-resourced and he was doing everything that he needed to do to be able to possibly be there and work. And I don't, I don't know what it's like to be the only guide in India. I had a very different, my image of him changed when I went back to India to work as the school, at the school. Okay, but I don't want you to jump there. because uh, Yeah, I'm just saying, yeah. And I can appreciate that because when you're an adult and you're, under-resourced working with a lot of young people and if we understand our context well enough we know that him and his wife were probably sent by Yogi Bhajan to be there and they went there under-resourced and so what does he do right he is the only person that time and then you said the Gurpreets come so there's like three or four Americans helping yeah. and you're also giving us the context that in India as white American Sikhs there's kind of this rock star energy to it so you know there's this good parts that give you opportunities and you have experiences that you would have never had but then there's also these not so good parts and it sounds like you were able to manage the not so good parts in a way that a lot of students might not have been able to because of the way that you maneuvered your relationship with Nanak Dev. Yeah. Yeah, that's can accurate. Us, so can you give us a glimpse into that? Because I know I want to really give a, 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 a full picture of what that really means for the listeners. Nobody got it worse from Nanak Dev than his own son. And we all saw that. And it was hard for all of us to watch. If he had a flaw, if, if, if I had to pick Nanakia's biggest flaw, it's how he treated his own son. It was brutal. It was, uh, you know, 
he was, he is such a talented, amazing kid. Now a man. And he was one of my first friends in the Dharma. And that's why I went to their ashram. And it was awful. The public berating, you know, the, the just, I don't know. It was, it was, it wasn't so physical as it was just public and emotional. It was just berating and putting down, insulting. And we all knew it. We all watched it. I think Nanak Dave was so out of his depth because I knew a Nanak Dave that was kind and fun. And I saw a Nanak Dave who was so in his ego, who, who thought he was such the man and was so in his like whole macho image wearing his big old shit kicker cowboy boots with his bana and just strutting around and acting like he was all that and a box of ho-hos. I mean, it was, it was really annoying. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there were a lot of interactions that I didn't even see, you know, the stuff I've heard from a lot of the younger kids I, I, I wouldn't call any of them liars. So, you know, but I, Nanak Dave is not the one that I hold responsible. He is accountable for what he did. We're all accountable for the decisions we make and the actions we take. I hold accountable to a much larger degree, the entire system above him. The fact that he didn't have any help, the fact that he wasn't qualified and nobody noticed that. There were people, and I don't need to name names, but there were people, not just the Searsing Sub, there were layers in between. There were people who were officially by title in charge of the program in India, who used to come over once in a while and check in, who clearly were not paying attention. You know? Um, And then ultimately the searching sub, you know, and, and we can get more into that. I have strong feelings about that, but what I really don't think that program was a, was a, was a product of is some master plan. I think that program was, was run on incompetence. That program was run on incompetence, neglect, and sheer dumb luck. And there was no plan. There was no interest in our well-being. There was no, but I also don't think that somebody was sitting there pulling the levers going, how do we mess with these kids? And there are so many reasons. There are so many facets to that. But one of them, I think, is that You've heard reference to this idea that we were told we were better than, that we're superior, that because we have the technology, whatever that means, and because we're living as Sikhs, that somehow 
the things that are going to affect the world and everyone else, they're just not going to touch us. Like we're going to be okay no matter what, because we're living this life. Well, that was put into us as kids. I believe the people that were supposed to be looking out for us felt the same thing. I really do believe that none of them had a, a, a like a malicious bone in their body in terms of like, how do we mess with, with these kids? They really believed they were doing the right thing. And they really believed in this, this bullshit superiority, this idea that we don't have to study modern child development and child psychology because we have the technology. Right. We don't need to consult experts because we have the searching sub and he's given us meditations. Oh, you have ADD? Just do this meditation. Oh, you're on the spectrum? Oh, you just need to go do this yoga and this meditation. And, and you know, you just have to like grind up, you know, make up, make up the formula and it will fix your brain. This seed for 40 days and this with some yogurt and right. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're really painting a picture of just like this atmosphere of just constant neglect with a total belief system that it's a real upliftment and that no but matter I don't even what think you were conscious of any of that at all anybody was nobody i agree i believe the whole atmosphere it was like as a kids we were able to witness and detect wow these adults really aren't very present and we have to tend to ourselves and then as that kind of you know like what you're describing is they're doing the best they can but they're super under resourced probably not in their body you know not thinking not in their body how about they're just not equipped for the job not Just because you job. want to be an astrophysicist doesn't mean that you're capable of being an astrophysicist. Fair enough. Fair enough. We you already know, you know that they are not Dave out of the brass bed factory. He's just one of the good old boys hanging out doing yoga and send him over to take care of, you know, I don't know how old he was, 30, 20, late 20s. You send him over there to take care of all these kids. He doesn't know shit about it. He, he's not even good at dealing with his own son. And now you want to put him in charge of 100 kids? Come on. So, I mean, we're hearing that as we hear more and more of the early abuse and also just, you know, the, 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 the uh, patterns of behavior that Nanak Dev, you know, expressed over time and being so under-resourced, we can understand how that could happen, but it doesn't discount the abuse. How about your role in that? How, how about how he used you as a part of his own pawn in that under-resourced place? And I don't know if I'm naming it right, but I've, yeah. I hear, I know that to be the case and I'd like you to speak to it. Sure. I honestly don't know how it started. And I don't remember how it happened, but so I think. You were given the title enforcer. Yes. By him. Yes. So you were basically like his go-to, you're the one gonna give the punishment that I'm instilling, which then probably brought to you getting instilling punishment on others. Yes. Um, I don't know how many times it happened. I don't think it happened that many times. And I honestly don't know when it started or why or how I got the title or why he chose me. I don't know. Um, I, but I punished some kids. I absolutely did. And I recruited other kids to help me do it. Yeah. And this I definitely, I definitely put the hurt on some kids. I, 
I don't have clear memories of it. And that is not me copping out. I have, I have memories of like hitting a kid on the sole of his feet a bunch of times because it hurts. I have memories of putting my knuckles into their sternum and rubbing really hard because I know it hurts. Yeah, I did that to kids. I absolutely did. Never did it again. I, that's not me. I've spent my whole life serving humanity as much as I can. I, I want to say- I don't know how it happened. I really don't know how it happened. I wish I had an origin story. I don't, I know the ego rock. I don't know how I got that title. And somehow, somehow, and I'm ashamed to say it, but you know, I really took to it. I took to the name. I liked being called out for something, even if it was negative. You know, I don't know why. You know, and the stories have grown. I've heard stories about I had a stick wrapped with barbed wire that I hit kids with. Shit, that never happened. <laughs> I never hit somebody with a barbed wire wrapped stick. I can promise you that. Well, I, um, I just want to say that it's okay to not remember because you're a kid. Even if I just don't want anybody to think I'm trying to like dodge it. I, I hear I'm you. not. I, I'm really not. I, I don't. And there may be people who don't believe me and I can't do anything about that. But, you know, I remember a few people that I did this to. Um, and you acknowledge that there's a lot more that you don't remember. Possibly. Yeah, that there's time. And I don't think this went on for very long. And I want to just- went on, This okay. went on as far as I remember for one winter, one winter break. Not and throughout then, the school years. You're saying just during the, the winter break. There right? was one winter break because I, the first time I remember this happening that I have a recollection is we were in the city of Patna where Guru Gobind Singh was born. We had taken the trip out there and that's, that's my first memory of, of, of being the enforcer and doing that. And the last time I remember doing it was the same winter and I won't name who I did it to, but I remember and we were living in the Akal Tucket. I did that in the Akal Tucket, which I don't know how significant that is to anybody, but that's the seat of religious authority for all Sikhs all over the world. I mean, it's kind of tragically fucking ironic that that was the place I did that. Um, and again, I wanna speak out loud that, that you're a teenager in school and put into this mm -hmm. position by the adult authority yeah. and who as a teenager doesn't want this level, you know, especially I want to say for who you've had to become from your story so far. I mean, you knew you wanted to go to military school more than India. So to be put into a position of authority over your peers isn't something that most people would say no to in your position. You know, I want to speak to, if I can, to seems like a good place to segue a little bit into the bullying culture in general. I would like that. You know, in India at GNFC, which is all I can speak to, because that's where I was, 
we had such a weird relationship to bullying. This was a boys boarding school. I'm not going to excuse the bullying that we committed, but it went on everywhere. It was prefects hitting kids with hockey sticks. And those weren't Americans. It was a beating because you did this or that. I mean, it, it, a boys boarding school is by some people's estimation, a brutal environment. And there's lots of movies about this, not our school, any boys boarding school, the hazing that goes on, you know, the teachers can't be everywhere. And as long as you didn't actually really like put somebody in the hospital, not much was going to be done. And as Americans, we had this strange, from my perspective, this very strange relationship with this, where we would haze each other and the kids younger than us, we might slap them on the head as they walk by, or uh, we had this really sad joke of like, hey, it's be nice to junior day. So we'd be nice to the juniors all day. And that meant that we had to make up for it the next day. Mm. And they knew that, and it was like a joke. And there's a couple of things that don't, you know, that I, I have reflected on over the years. Number one, we had this very strange relationship with each other because we could harass younger Americans and we didn't consider it bullying. But if an Indian did anything to the Americans, we were all over them. Like we can hit that kid on the back of the head, not you. We protected them from Indians. Go figure. What the fuck is that? Like we had this sense of family and we're going to protect you from those people, but then we're going to be totally dysfunctional over here. Mm. And like we would encourage the juniors to, to band together and be strong and be tough. And like if any Indian picked on them, I remember watching and egging them on going, there's more of you than him. Get him. And like we were proud of them and hoisting them on our shoulders and giving them hugs because the group of them kicked the shit out of that kid that was bullying them. But tomorrow I'm going to slap you on the back of the head again. I have no idea what that's about. I can't explain it. I can just tell you that that's what I saw. And if I, what I really wish someone had done Nanak Dev, the Searing Sub, and anybody in between in that chain of command, that chain of authority, I wish they had recognized what was going on, or maybe not even recognize it, but have the wherewithal and the sensitivity and the kindness to say, you know, let's create a culture here. Let's, if not reactively, preemptively, or vice versa, try to say, you know, we're family. You're halfway around the world from the people that love you. This is your, your pseudo family. So let's take care of each other. And in a weird way we did, but we didn't know how to show it. Like, like me slapping a little kid on the back of the head as he went by was my way of saying, Hey, I like you. Mm. I don't know how that got in my head. I don't know why I thought that was okay. I don't know why any of us thought it was okay. And I make no excuses for it whatsoever. I did it. 
I don't think I was any worse than anybody else. I don't think I was any better than anybody else. That was the culture we lived in. Well, it sounds you know, like the position of enforcer, you had to have been worse because you were in a posture to be worse because you- No, I knew, I knew kids who did it sadistically for fun. Well, I we're hearing those stories too, but I'm just sharing, you know, I'm more saying it's not just a peer to peer anymore. When an adult puts us in authority, that changes the dynamic quite a bit. And by the way, I just got infamous for that title. I wasn't the only one that Nanak Dave had punish other people. They're just not remembered for it. Mm. I have had the unfortunate. blessing, curse, whatever, of sticking out. Well, I hope that more people from early days shared stories and lenses, because what I find so fascinating about this early group that you're talking about, my brother's age and you, and um, is, is, is a lot of the picture you're sharing. It's just kind of like, whoa, we're in India and we have no connection back to America. We're going to be here for the next five years. And you're glean there's so much good and not good simultaneously. And I think that's a really important, you've just yeah. really helped us really understand the perspective and then the, the scene too, for adults to be sent over, no resources and their purpose. I mean, what we're seeing now is they're purposely not giving the right resources and enough adults or any of those things. We're, they're probably the children care, children's camp. People, yeah. You know? yeah, no, I mean, it was, I would not have sent my daughters to that school knowing what I know. I would not have sent them to that environment. And I think that speaks volumes. I don't think many of us would have, mm -hmm. you know, it was, India was a blessing and a curse. You know, we had Sundays off. We had so much fun playing football, playing baseball. As the Americans, we would get together and do all these sports. The juniors played with us. You know, we, we, we also had a good time with all those kids, the same kids that we were bullying. We didn't bully them every time we saw them. We traveled with them. We, we hung out with them. We like, it was, it was very bizarre. That's all I can say. Well, I think that's the nature too of close knit relationships. Like we're talking, like you're talking about, and this is the nature of bonding, right? Households have bonding and there's good and bad experiences within a household. And this is basically the epitome of your household. If we're being honest. Yeah. I, I, I will share something with you that I've never told anybody and maybe I shouldn't, but I'm gonna. So here we go. Nanak Dev was super into yoga and meditation. Uh, near as I could tell, I think he was a hell of a practitioner of yoga. Like he was pretty strong. He was into it. He was always trying to teach it to us. Um, and that was all good, but I had a, a thing happen where I was messing around with tarot cards. Like in India, you got time. So I found a deck of tarot cards. I'm like, what is this horse shit? So I'm playing with tarot cards and I'm reading the book and like, ha ha ha, this is funny, whatever. I can say this because he's dead. Nanak Dave one day when nobody was around, he made sure nobody was around. He's like, come here, come here. We got, we come over here. I got to talk to you. I was like, oh, okay, what's up? He goes, do you have your tarot cards with you? Like, yeah. He made me throw the tarot cards for him 
on several questions about him, about his wife, about his relationship, about, I'm like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> you actually believe this shit? <laughs> he was dead serious. But and he made sure nobody else, no one else was around. And then he told me that he's going to be the next Mahan Tantric. Oh, Lord. And wanted me to throw the tarot cards. And I'm like, sure. And this was one of those moments where you're not freaked out. You're just like, you know, something weird is going on. You're like, something just got said that cannot be unsaid. And it rung. It had a, it, you know, like, like you just exposed your very inner self to me and you can't joke it off. You can't laugh it off. You can't make an excuse. Like it was so weird. I'm like, okay, can I go now? <laughs> like, I just wanted to forget it. Like you're kidding, right? Like he really believed it. Right, but I also want to context that he's he's the adult here. You're the teenager here. He's now like there's this level of a oh yeah of a yeah enough said. No, I mean I have the context. Believe me, I had it even then. I'm that's why I say it. like I'm just repeating it out loud for yeah. listeners. So yeah, that yeah, that's why I say I think he was massively in his ego over there. I think that's where he went wrong. You know, I think that's where he lost himself and became you know, this at times monster. Well, and I think that he's also a monster because he's completely under-resourced with a lot of kids and doesn't even get the support. He's probably fed by Yogi Bhajan that he's about to become the next Mahan Tantric and he's got to go through this test. It was, it was weird. That was one of those weird moments in your childhood where you're just like, Really? Did that just happen? Okay. Another adult. Show <laughs> I got rid of the tarot cards after that. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit anymore. No, thank you. Like, I just, it had a weird effect on people and I, I didn't like it. So, but yeah, so I, and then Nanakiv, what really happened was Nanakiv kind of ruled with an iron fist. And then he got kicked out of the country after 1984. Um, he had, he had associations with known separatists and Khalistanis and the government sent him home. Wow. And then we were out of control because there was nobody like him. So we had lived under this totalitarian regime <laughs> and Perestroika showed up and uh, we went nuts. I mean, like nobody could control us because we had already dealt with and lived under the toughest guy we knew and everybody else after him was like you ain't nothing you can't you, what are you gonna do to us and we're not afraid of you you know at that point i'm like 17 you know but so you know a few things happened my time there my you know my second year in india i um I, I convinced a couple of uh, boys to sneak over to the girls' school with me in the middle of the night. We vandalized the crap out of the place. And we got caught and owned it. And we got kicked out of school. And I went to live in, but we couldn't go home. Like, we were excited. We thought we were going home. <laughs> so me and two other teenage boys went to go live in Amritsar by ourselves at the Golden Temple. And that, that changed my life. Um, I had no money. 
And on a whim, I decided to take Amrit so I could clean the Golden Temple every night. And I served Lunger every day, twice a day, so I could eat. We started cleaning other Gurdwaras around the city and we got to know the city and the locals and got much better at the language and had a very profound spiritual experience in that, whatever it was, six months before I got back into school. And we got, we got, we got, they allowed us to come back to school, but we couldn't rejoin the dorm. And so we had to live off campus and do our homework and study to, to take our exams to, and we could go to school the next year. Mm. And that's when Gurpreet Singh Gurpreet Kar showed up and they came to live in our house with these three troubled youths that had just gotten kicked out of school. And uh, we got to know Gurpreet's really well because we lived in a house with them and, and they were super cool. Like I love Gurpreet's and Gurpreet Singh is the only other person I know who shares my birthday. And uh, okay. so we, we kind of bonded, it was cool. And um, so that happened, you know, we had a lot of experiences in India where, you know, you saw how cheap human life was and you also learned how to do without and, and, you know, gave you India, India could really give you grit or it could break you. Um, and I, it didn't break me. Um, you know, I got much closer to my sister who was there the whole time. And every Sunday, every weekend, I would go over to the girls' school that I could and go visit with her. And because she was the only family I had there, we became a lot closer. Mm. Um, and instead of the siblings that were fighting, she became my little sister that, you know, just, and we're really close to this day, really close. Um, you know, then Nanakiv got kicked out. And those, those last couple of years in India, um, I, you know, I was 17, I graduated when I was 18. I was starting to come into my own because my birthday's late in the year. Um, I was kind of a little bit older than most people. I think your brother was about the only one who was a couple months older than me. Okay. And uh, I started to recognize who I was and what influence I had over other people. Um, and I think the Searching Sub started to as well. He would say stuff to me or, you know, when he'd come over and I got kicked out of school before my final. And it was such a badge of honor. They, they came to me and they said, <laughs> we have to send you home. We think it's better for the program. I was like, I'm that powerful. Like it's better for the entire program. If I go home, amazing. <laughs> wielding power uh, so i went home and somewhere over iceland they told the searching sub that i was coming home and he said absolutely not but too late i was on a plane and uh so i got home i hadn't been home in five years i visited my dad in boston which was super cool i hadn't seen him in a while and then i came to new mexico and i saw the searching sub and he's like you're going back and you're gonna take your finals i'm like all right He's like, you know, this kid, you know, he'd heard about somebody had problems. I said, yeah, he goes, you created that, go back and fix it. And you know, this kid, and he went down this list of kids that were, <laughs> I guess, you know, causing problems in the program. And he's like, you created it, go fix it. And I was like, was he wrong to say it? I don't know. I do know that I was very much being selfish and not willing to admit how much of an influence I had over the larger group 
and how much I could undermine the authority of the adults in the program. And I was certainly making things much harder for them. You know, there was a lot of kids who looked up to me and I, 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 I denied it. I wouldn't even acknowledge it. I'm like, I don't care. I'm not in charge of anything. They don't have to look up to me. I'm not telling them to. So here I am breaking the rules and they're looking at me and it's just, it was making it near impossible for some of the staff. And this was part of the process of me starting to like accept who I am, you know, what authority I wielded, what power I had, you know, just by being me, what my shortcomings were, trying not to be in my ego about it, but sometimes you didn't always manage. Um, and so then I came home. You now I finally graduated and came home. Uh, I didn't know what to do. So I went to go live in Virginia with friends, you know, for a year. Um, did a half-ass attempt at college. Wasn't for me. But uh, one thing that was, a couple of things that were noteworthy while I was there. Number one, Virginia at the time had a pretty large sangha and there was a whole bunch of kids in India that were my juniors that were all going to school there. And we remember having conversations with these parents and they were looking at us, you know, um, going to heavy metal concerts, getting drunk, acting like teenagers, you know, you know, I was, I, I was dating somebody who wasn't a Sikh. I was, you know, like we were just doing our thing. And we remember having, and I was always very nice to everybody in the ashram. It, it wasn't my, I wasn't walking around angry, you know, like, eh, screw you. Like when I was at the ashram, fine. I, I was doing all of this away. I, I had a strange sort of code that it's like, these people want to live this way. I don't, I'm going to go over there and do that. And when I come back here, I'll be that way. I don't know why I had that, but I did. Mm. And I would talk to these parents and I wasn't the only one. There was like seven of us living in a house that we'd all come from India and these parents would be like, our kids aren't going to be like you. They were born in the Dharma. They're going to wear turbans and bonnet for the rest of their life. They're not going to go through what you guys are going through. And we were like, ah, you're fooling yourself. That's not how it works. And we would try to tell them and they would not listen. And it was just obvious we weren't going to get through to them. Um, so, you know, those sort of interactions were noteworthy. Um, mm -hmm. Also, when I first came back from India, I think your brother was there. We went to the Cults Council meetings and at lunch, we were sitting at a table, just my peers and we were eating and he came and sat with us. And he said, flat out, he looked at all of us and said, you're all going to college and none of you have to pay for it. I will. And as soon as we asked about that, we're like, oh, he didn't actually mean that. Like, that didn't sound like a joke. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think it was only him. I sometimes think, you know, I saw acts of kindness from him. I saw him be generous with people. And I saw other people take that away. That were underneath him. So, you know, I don't think he said that to have and then had somebody else take it back. I think he was writing a check that he couldn't cover. I think he wanted to say that. And he, you know, I saw him cry. I saw him want to genuinely take care of people and not. Sorry, pause. You're saying that 
he might be generous in words, but being generous in words and then being able to follow through are very different things. I agree with you. Okay. I was just clear. That was a betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> he lied. I'm not, what I'm saying though, is that he is in charge. Therefore, ultimately it falls on his shoulders and he's responsible for those actions. But he made a promise. He made a commitment. And that was the first of many that he didn't follow through that slowly eroded my relationship with him. Got it. Check. But I don't know that he necessarily knew that somebody came to us and said, that's not going to happen. Fair enough. I don't, I don't know that he sent them, but it doesn't really matter. Ultimately he gave his word and didn't follow through. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that happened is in Virginia, head of the ashram was Gurjot Singh. And he's a controversial figure. You know, it's, it's a matter of public record. He was charged by, you know, you know, in federal court for drug running. And he owned a business where they were, you know, ripping people off with toner and all that bullshit. But at the same time, he gave us all a place to live and said, your rent's $300 a month. And if you go to Sadna, I'll pay you $10 a day for every day you go to Sadna so you can live rent free or you can pay $300 a month. And he loaned us money to buy cars so we could go to college. And if we were in a jam, he loaned us money and he paid somebody in the ashram to come over and cook food for a bunch of teenage boys so that they had decent food in the kitchen. You know, they gave us a house in the ashram to live in. Yep. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And I saw him employ people in the ashram and the, and, and, you know, there's another case of the hypocrisy that we grew up going. So you're ripping people off for a living at the very least deceiving them, which goes against the grain of being a Sikh and earning by the sweat of your brow. But then you're not doing all like selfish things with that money. It's like a means, you know, it's an end, it's a means to an end kind of thing, which doesn't make it right. But I am benefiting from this. Yeah. So go figure. Go figure. And you don't, you don't have a black and white answer for that. You're just, you know, I'm in culture shock just coming back to the US and I'm like, oh God. <laughs> so I got done with Virginia for a year. I came to New Mexico the next summer and I decided to stay because I felt like I was headed in a direction in, in Virginia that wasn't going to serve me. Mm. Uh, I was drinking too much. I was partying too hard. Um, I did a short stint as a lead singer of a heavy metal band. Um, you know, I was just hanging with a pretty rough crowd. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to go live that life. I mean, I very purposely wanted that experience. And then I kept remembering my time, no matter how drunk I was at the Golden Temple and living that life. And I was like, this is not serving you. Mm. And I was... I was pretty strong in my Sikh identity, but I didn't really, I wasn't anti, you know, yoga, meditation and all of the Sears and Subs teachings, but I wasn't into it, mm. but I wasn't against it. I didn't have a problem with it. It's just like, I don't want to do it. It doesn't work for me. Um, so I ended up in New Mexico and um, I ended up just by chance. I needed a job and 
um, one of my friend's dads worked at a call and he's like, why don't you come work at the ranch for the summer? All right. Traded my guitar for a gun and kind of never looked back. <laughs> True story. Um, right on. You know, so I worked at the ranch for the summer and I got around the searching sub more and more and more and he started to pay attention to me. Then I went to work for a call security. I did that for several years and I dealt with him more and more and more and more. And there are several things that happened over those years. Um, I'll try to give you a synopsis. I had enough interactions with him over the years where I stopped taking him seriously when he would say things like I totaled a vehicle at a call. Um, I'm lucky I walked away without a scratch. I rolled that thing over a couple of times and it, it spun around and went through a tree and I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. It was two in the morning and uh, somehow I walked away without a scratch. I, I, don't, I don't know how I did that. When I saw him next, he was like, I was going to give you a huge bonus this year, but you wrecked the vehicle, so I can't. I didn't believe him. I wasn't even offended. I wasn't even like, really? I was just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I know you well enough now that I, I just don't even believe you. <laughs> just like, I just don't believe you. And while I was spending time at a call, people kept saying to me, you're like the owner's son. Like, you're just stay here. You're going to keep climbing the ranks. And I didn't want that. Mm. I wanted to earn whatever I got. I wanted it on the merit of my work and who I was. Mm. And so it was not working for me. Um, and I was starting to see a disconnect in how we were treating each other. We treated each other in the Dharma that we're all working together worse than the way we, than how we were treating civilian employees. Let's just call them that. Mm -hmm. But then when you'd see him at Gidwara on the weekend, they'd be like, hi, G, how are you? Like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> like, you were just treating me like shit on Friday. Like, that, we don't pick that up again on Monday. And uh, today you get to act like. Mm. And so you, the, the, the disillusion was building. And, uh, there were a number of things that were happening. I was around the searching club. And while I was there, um, you know, I would get pulled off of working for a call when I was, when he was in town and I was his, for large chunks of time, his primary bodyguard. And I just got to see how, you know, he dealt with people and things. And meanwhile, these women are walking in and out of the dome every morning, every evening, and I had no idea. Wow. Not a clue. To my shame, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't know that I was supposed to be protecting people from him. I made a contract with that man. I was willing to give my life for him because he was serving something big and I was serving him to do that mm. that was my way of helping because I believed in what he was trying to do or at least purportedly was trying to do I think I've always had that in me 
I would have served the military. I would have served anything. Mm. I wanted to serve. I, I generally like to be a part of something that's bigger than me. And I think he, I'll never know, right? I'm, I'm not in his head, but I think he saw that in me because say what you want about him. The man had skills. He knew how to read people. Yeah. He knew, you know, and if you're a supporter, you probably see, you see it as he knew how to help you or move you along. If you are cynical or you don't believe, then he manipulated you. I think it just depends on, on how you saw it. But I think he knew what he was doing and he used me. And, and, you know, some of us have spoken who, who did, you know, who were his bodyguards and people close to him. And, you know, I think they were, they were much more influential than I was, but I think he chose his allies very carefully. I stood next to him in uniform or out with a gun on people knew who I was and I helped project his power in some small way. Mm. he used me just like he used many other people had he been honest about what he was doing and how he was living you know then i could have made an honest decision but no he i was representing him under false pretenses Mm. and you know i did things i'm not proud of there were people who were labeled as predators who came to solstice and they were supposedly being a predator around our young women. You know, they, maybe they had like a, they were the nephew of somebody, you know, in the Dharma and they had come. I put a gun on and I'd wake him up early in the morning. You know, someone would come with me. I'd be like, you have 30 minutes to get the fuck out of here. You're going to jail. The New Mexico state police are going to come get you. Well, you can't do that. What do you, who's, who the New Mexico state police going to believe? Me or you? We've been here a long time. We have relations with them. Get the fuck out of here and never come back. And don't let this get physical because you'll get hurt. I threatened people for him. I threatened our own kids for him. Not with that. But, you know, we had kids that were coming to New Mexico. We knew they were bringing lots of drugs to solstice and, you know, there were kids who weren't going to get it on their own. And then there were kids who were bringing it and giving it to everybody. And, you know, I look back on it. It's like, they're being kids. They were acting out. They were angry. I'm not mad at them. They were being who they were. And I helped send some of them away. And I don't know why I couldn't see that We're supposed to be a family and we're supposed to forgive and we're supposed to be inclusive, not to our own detriment, mind you. But, you know, this idea of somebody cut their hair or took a turban off and everybody's bashing them. And it's like, you know, these kids should have felt like this is always where they can come back to. This was their home, no matter what. This community should have always been a safe haven for them. You know, not not unconditionally, again, not to the detriment of the community, but they weren't welcome. If anybody decided to go against the grain, they weren't welcome. Now, I heard him tell people, you're going to be a prostitute. You know, he told a friend of mine, 
when you get to St. Peter's Gate, I'm going to be there and I'm going to make sure you don't, don't get in. Wow. And this kid, this kid wrestled with it for years, you know, like on his rational mind was like, that's a bunch of shit. But, but, but in the, in the back of his mind, he's like, Oh my God, he wrestled with it for years. What if he's right? I watched him do that. And these were my friends. These were people I grew up with. You know, I, I watched things happen that I should not have stood by. I was 22 years old. You know, I have to own what I did, by the way. I'm not, I'm not using 22 years old as an excuse and I'm pretty hard on myself about it. Yeah. But honestly, I look back at, you know, one of my daughters that's 20 and I go, Oh, wow. Yeah. We're not all that bright at that age. (laughs) So. I think that's just a really important thing. And also everything you've shared is the, the environment that we grow up in, we become and we don't know it, we're just it. We're a living example of it and then our resilience. I just wanna say thank you so much. You've really um, shared. You know, I, I really clung to what I was doing and how I was serving. Yeah. And then finally they pissed me off enough that I quit a call and my plan was to go back to, um, back to school. And now let me pause you here. Cause you're already married. Is that correct or no? Oh yeah. I got married at 23. Okay. So let's pause. Cause I really want you to give us context on that. You and I are 10 years apart because my brother is 10 years older than me. And, you yep. know, so I just remember this so significantly just because of the atmosphere of what was really took place. And when you guys came back, when a bulk of you came back, there were just a lot of like sudden marriages. And what I remember is like just a lot happening with that. And I remember like your wife was actually, your current wife, who's your wife, um, was actually like engaged to somebody else for a very long time. And then you were with somebody else for a long time. And then because of a, a situation that you and your wife had, then Yogi Bhajan switches the two or something. So anyways, give us some context because I remember the gravity of the suddenness. You guys are like 20s. You or- remember it. I'm you eight. remember it. <laughs> but I'm well, not. Turn the light on. I'm, what, no, I'm 12. If you're 22, I'm 12. A 12 year old seeing these things and I'm looking up to you guys, you know, like you guys were everything because my brother is our way in. So like, and so, you know, I knew this age group, you guys, age group was my age group because our, my brother gave us that lens in. And I just remember being like, oh my God, kind of like feeling the drasticness of what was taking place. So I was dating a woman who was living in another city. I was living in Espanola. Jiwan uh, was living in Espanola. That's your wife, current wife. And her fiance, which is, you know, 
I'll only say that the searching sub engaged them when they were 10. So that's a whole fucked up in and of itself. Not defending G1, but she didn't want to be married, engaged to your data. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to say names. Oops. <laughs> Anyways, um, G1, she was 18. I was 22. Uh, she was interested in me. Um, one night, temptation got the better of me and I made out with her. People found out and the searching sub said, that's it. You marry Jiwon. Did I, you marry? I was not down with this at all. Mm. I was shell-shocked. I was really disappointed in my own behavior the betrayal that I caused for somebody else. I didn't think I surprised myself that I was capable of that. You know, that was, so I was already reeling from that, the shame, the embarrassment, the hurt, the, you know, that I caused other people. I mean, these people were my girlfriend and my friends. We all grew up together. These were not nameless people. So first and foremost, I was ashamed of what I had done because that's not behavior to be proud of. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I have to, you know, wear it like an albatross around my neck for the rest of my life, but you know, that's not something you stand up and go, yeah, I did that. <laughs> you know, like with you, like, you're so proud, like, yeah, that's shitty behavior. That's, that's kind of what young people do to each other often and you learn from it, but it's not, it's not behavior that you're proud of. So I'm dealing with that. And then what I get from my girlfriend is when I finally called her, she's like, yeah, this is the way it has to be. I'm going to marry this guy. You marry that girl. This is all the way it's supposed to be. What I didn't know is that the searching saw had gotten a hold of her for days and they told her all kinds of stories about what I had been doing and all the women I had been sleeping with, all of which was a lie. Mm. And she was shell-shocked, I guess. I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but you know, yeah. they broke her down. Jiwon wanted to be with me, but she was... 18 so you know i'm not going to judge her harshly for that you know like she was a kid you tell an 18 year old she gets what she wants like you know I, i'm not surprised um so my girlfriend and you know the guy were getting married that was done but i hadn't agreed to get married i was you know and i even tried to talk everybody out of it you know, I was like, this isn't right. Meanwhile, no one, and I mean no one, I have no recollection of a single person that I look up to that was older than me, that was somebody I respected, that somebody I trusted, 
came to me and offered any kind of anything as far as help. Nothing. Nothing. On three different occasions, the searching sub said, you need to marry G1. And I said, no. And nobody, nobody stood up for me. Nobody. Not my parents. Not these people older than me that I thought were my friends. No one. Quite the opposite. Why are you saying no? He knows what's best for you. Nobody seemed to care that I didn't want to get married. And then the third time I gave in. I gave in and I got married with the attitude of fuck it. If it's not good, I'll just get divorced. Who gives a shit? Hardly the attitude to take to the wedding. I was so not into it. They're like, what kind of wedding do you want? I was like, I don't care. But afterwards, we're either going skiing or surfing. That's all I care about. (laughs) The other part that I didn't realize for a long time, because I was absolutely shell-shocked. I mean, I was just in a fucking daze. I'm telling coworkers, like I'm getting married. They're like, oh, how long have you known her? Like, oh, it's supposed to be this joyous thing. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to my grandparents. I don't know what to say to anyone. I have no story to tell anyone that makes any sense. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. Mm. And this is the part that's probably hardest to admit. It broke me. I consider myself strong. I consider myself a man's man. Mm. I consider myself all that crap that they call male toxic masculinity or whatever the hell that shit is. You know, I'm the guy who runs in when everybody's running away. I'm afraid of nothing. And he broke me. Mm. And what that did to my identity as a man, that I could be broken that I could do something that I didn't want to do. I could be made to do something I didn't want to do. I didn't recover from that for years. And what I mean by that is what it took to break me, to get me to do that. It was years before I could say no to anything. Everything after that was like, okay, yes. All right. I was worthless. My life was not my own. My desires were not my own. My wants were not my own. I made peace with it. This was my lot in life. This is what I had to do. I made every excuse you could imagine. And I didn't love my wife. And I went into a marriage of like, well, fine, I have to marry you. Doesn't mean I have to like it. Doesn't mean I have to like you. Don't call me your husband. I'm not calling you my wife. You want dinner? No, I'll make my own if I want some. 
I was so shitty to Juwan. She didn't deserve it. It's not her fault. Now, she's accountable for her actions. She has to own what she did. I have to own what I did. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying we, we're not, you know, I mean, you have to put that responsibility for your actions in context. But, and then the other thing that I didn't realize for years was that, again, no one, no one spoke up. No one came to me and even said, hey, listen, I know you don't want to do this and I know you're going to. So that's going to create potentially some problems. Let's talk about that. Not one person came to me and said, hey, that couple that already got married, that were some of your closest friends, like you guys are still going to be friends. So maybe we should talk about that and try to like find some strategies to fucking. So, you know, that dude and I like it took so long before we could have a real conversation. And to this day, I think we're both old enough and mature enough that we've made peace with it. Yeah, I don't think we ever got to it. Because I don't know about you, I didn't have the skills at 22 years old to deal with that. I didn't even know how to begin. And so I had this mantra, like he made me do it. The moment that you say that someone made you do it, you have given everything away. You know, if, you know, one of the single greatest lessons I wish someone had given me in my childhood and I gave it to both of my daughters is own every decision you make. If somebody tells you to do something, evaluate it and then decide, I'm going to do this. I am deciding to do this. I told my daughters, I don't care if you fail a math test. Just don't make excuses for it. If you choose not to study, then own the grade. I'll be more upset if you make excuses about your life. If one person had bothered to impart that lesson to me, that I, what a shift in my brain that would have happened if I had said, Mm. all right, sir, I hear what you're saying. And I'm agreeing to do that. I am agreeing to do that. Mm. How powerful is that to say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm owning this. But that wasn't what it was about. You obey. And so, you know what? For that, fuck him. <laughs> you know? I mean, I can forgive him because that's for my healing so I can move on. I'm forgiving for very selfish reasons. But not cool. Totally. And I wasn't the only one he did that to. And it wasn't just over marriages or who you slept with or your business or whatever else. My guess is power was his game. Manipulation was his game. Yeah. He didn't drive the nicest cars. The statues at the ranch were all broken. That's how he got them all cheap. He wasn't into like the biggest and the nice. He wasn't doing the Rajneesh thing and having, you know, 
a beautiful brand new Rolls Royce for each day of the week. That wasn't his game. You know, I can't say exactly what his game is, but he really consistently liked to manipulate people. And you could look at that and say, oh, he sees your destiny. Or you could be cynical and say he's really messing with your head. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was really, 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 really hard. And to pile on to that, several years into the marriage, I had an affair. Wow. That got found out. Okay. I had a family member call me up and say, is it true? I said, yeah. Are you leaving your wife? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like not yet, or I haven't left or something. And they said, oh, thank God. The honor of the family is intact. Not how are you? What happened? Are you okay? Wow. So then insult to injury, woman I had an affair with, Surgeon Sub calls us into the living room, tells that young woman, I was 25 or six. Says that young woman, you choose him or you choose me. And if you choose him, I'll never speak to you again and neither will your family. Whoa. I I couldn't do that. I couldn't handle that. He isolated her on the ranch and started raping her a year later. Wow. You think I don't bear some fucking responsibility for that? You think I don't (laughs) carry some fucking guilt for that? And I didn't know about it till years later. Yep. What a guy. Tell you another little thing as a side note that we went way past. My parents divorced when I was five. When I was 17, my dad started coming around. He was never a Sikh. Mm. My parents started talking. They actually wanted to get back together. They were eighth grade sweethearts. Wow. My dad missed her. He went and met the Searching Sub. He had a lot of friends that were Sikhs. He was hanging around having a good time. And he told the Searching Sub, I got no problem with the religion, but I'm not wearing the uniform. Searching Sub told my mom not to, not to get back together with my dad. Wow. Yeah, that was kind of shitty too. Who knows what would have happened? I'm not saying that they would have lived happily ever after, but what kid doesn't want their parents to get back together? That's right. Like, who are you to mess with free will? Right. Who are you to take that away? You know? So I've forgotten more stories than I remember that are like that. You know? Um, can I pause you for a second, Sri? Um, can you turn on those lights behind you so that you just don't end up becoming a shadow blob? <laughs> yeah, we're on the lights. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I also want to, oh, wow, you got more shadow. Maybe the lights behind you doesn't work at all. It's okay. You got to turn off that one or turn them down. Maybe. (laughs) Sorry, I made you more of a shadow blob. That's okay. We try here. Just for clarity, you had just said when this whole thing, the the affair, and then 
he gave this ultimatum and then you didn't know about that till many years later, but you did know prior to, to us, to the public coming out this past like March, April, May, right? I found out about six years ago. Okay. Yep. Whoa. I threw up. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't, wasn't into like shouting it from the rooftops because you know, if we continue with this story, things had already changed so significant for me, significantly with between us that I didn't think anybody would believe me. So what's the point? People have to come to it on their own, you know? Um, yeah, somebody came and told me that, you know, all about it. And it was somebody I knew and therefore trusted, and it was, without me being there, it was, it was as trustworthy as it could be. I don't want to betray anybody's confidence. Absolutely. It's their business, but Absolutely. it was, it was in my mind, reliable and beyond reproach. And it made sense. You know, I, I had a long conversation with someone the other day, and you know, these rumors had always been there. And part of me as a man was like, what do you mean you came to America and never slept with your wife again and never slept with any other woman? <laughs> like, I, Yogi or not, I, mm, I'm not. But I had so many other issues at that point when I finally walked away that were very tangible and very real that chasing a rumor or something unsubstantiated didn't matter, right? I had very real tangible reasons for walking away and, and disagreeing with him. And it all started right after a call security yep. when I was gonna go to school and he pulled me in and said, you know, the kids are moving to Amritsar and I need somebody who can go over there and take care of these kids. You know, India, you know, the program, you know, these kids, you can do this. And of course he promised me a whole lot of things he didn't deliver, but again, he knows me. I mean, once I got there and you know, it was about taking care of these kids, then it wasn't about me. You know what I mean? I, I, I would, I would make it work because I cared about these kids because you know, whatever anybody wants to say, I'm a good person then I care. <laughs> so I got there and it was horrendous. You know, we had a hundred kids living in a house. Wow. I had 50 boys downstairs and roughly and roughly 50 girls upstairs. And I had three bathrooms for, for 50 boys. Wow. And they had just come from a pretty crappy school in a pretty crappy situation. And the, the, the academics, the school they were going to was a joke. The living conditions were subpar for sure. And one thing I knew was that tired kids create less problems. <laughs> so, and I had a lot of compassion for these kids. I really did. But uh, some things happened. Um, the first time one of the boys got out of line in any sort of semi-serious way, my first reaction was to hit him crush him, smash him. 
And I immediately checked myself and thought, that's a really bizarre reaction. That's a very bizarre thought to have. Why would you do that to a kid? Like, that's not okay. The kid never saw it. I never did anything. I like checked myself. Like, it was like, thought popped in my head and then went, that's not cool. Like, like scared myself. Like, whoa, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Like, why would you do that? That's what I knew. That's right. I was just falling back on what I knew. So I wouldn't do that. And I didn't do that. Um, however, I got very creative. <laughs> there were a lot of push-ups, a lot of laps, a lot of standing at attention. And I used the group to control it. The individuals that were difficult. You know, you want to be late all the time. You don't want to clean your room. Then the entire school is going to stand at attention in the sun until you're done cleaning your room. Mm. You only do that a few times because you don't want all those senior boys coming down on you because you can't get your shit together. Mm. You know, and I did some creative things that I thought were funny that were probably crossing the line. I had one young lady who was consistently late and difficult and through attitude. And so when she showed up at formation late, I was like, you come stand up here next to me. And I gave her a mango popsicle and sat her down in the chair and made sure she was comfortable while every, everyone did push-ups until she was done eating it. And I was like, no, slow down. You enjoy that popsicle. Slow down. We're, we're all fine waiting on you. Was that nice? Probably not. But you know what? Nobody was there to help me. And I didn't want to hit these kids. I also want to point out that it's masterful public shaming and using a group to create that. And, and that didn't come out of you. We got grown up in watching that. And then your and Yogi Bhajan was masterful at that. And then and then disseminating that through leadership power dynamics. I mean, I, I it's not just him. No, but it was a culture that we grew I up in. I learned that from the military. I learned that from, you know, here, you eat a jelly donut while the rest of your, uh, while the rest of your unit does push-ups and PTs till they puke, you know? <laughs> you did. Yeah. So what I want to say is I don't think there's anything that happens in our community that's not actually happening in other power dynamics oh, in the world. Yeah. And I've right. heard people say this. So let's just say this out loud. We're talking about our community. Yes, so we are. That's what, what I mean when I say that. Yes. But yes, I mean, we're like this microcosm of the same thing happening on a political level or, you know, all these other levels in our world yep. outside of our community. But what also happened at this school is I didn't have enough food for the kids. Mm. I didn't, the kids had to wash their own clothes for the first year we were there, even little kids because I had no money for laundry service. I had, you know, and, and meanwhile, the searching club is calling me regularly, wanting me to run political errands and get things done for him and do this and do that. And, and I'm saying, I need these things. And he says, yeah, I'm going to get them for you. And, 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 you know, I'm like, Hey, that thing you want me to do, I need this to do that. And he's calling me up saying, did you do it? And I said, no, because you're supposed to give me this or I'm waiting on this. And what about this? And he never had it. And he had excuses every time. Mm. 
And it slowly started to dawn on me, like, if my word is supposed to be ironclad, isn't your word even more important? Like, you know, I'm really big on leadership structures. And if you are going to take the perks of being in charge, you also get all of the responsibility and you are held to a higher standard. Yes. That's just how it works. If you have any honor at all, that's how it's supposed to work. So I started getting disillusioned saying, look, I need 50 cents a day for these, you know, per kid to eat. Why, why do I not have enough food? And I'm starting to challenge him very directly, but always politely. Just very firm saying, well, sir, I said I would do that, but you know, I'm waiting on this. And you told me you were going to give me that. Um, and so I was there for two years. I ran that school for two years. Um, years. What years were these? They all start to blur. I think it was, well, I could do the math. I mean, it was 25 years ago. I was 25, 20, 25 and 26. I used to do a thing. I don't know why I did this, but if it was your birthday, we all did push-ups for the number of years of your birthday. And so when it was my birthday in front of the school, we all did 26 push-ups. <laughs> but I did them too. Like, you know, like, you know, I go, I got those kids up every morning and I led Sadna every morning. And then we did PT and I led that every morning. And then they went, and then we did room inspection. I mean, like, but I also tried to be really nice about it. And we traveled every weekend and I tried to give them a, a, like, you're going to work hard and I'm going to demand a lot from you. And I'm going to give you as much good stuff as I can. I'm going to give you that free time and we're going to travel and we're going to go do things and we're going to, I tried to be very fair. I tried to be, you know, I remember like we did Sadna six days a week. And I remember we came back from a trip one weekend and we had six of the month and we had to get to the call tucket for the program. And the kids had some ungodly number of minutes to get it done, to get on the bus. So we weren't late. And it was like, it was a big push. We'd been traveling for a couple of days and they get on the bus and everybody's on time. We leave. And I said, awesome. We're sleeping in tomorrow. And then the bus erupted and they were so happy, but it was like, you know, I tried to also be nice, but I, I really, I was trying to take care of a hundred kids Wow. and I didn't have any help and no plan and nobody, no one ever called and said, how's it going? Is everything okay? Do you need anything? Not true. A couple of parents would ask me when they'd come over, but nobody in any authority, nobody who had anything to say. And a couple of things happened. Um, I slapped two kids mm. in those two years. I would do it again. Mm. Um, I know that's controversial. One of them broke into a servant's quarters, uber poor people, put all their belongings in the toilet and poured acid on it. And then went up on the roof and tried to drop bricks on people's heads. Wow. This kid was out of control. He didn't belong in India. As far as I'm concerned, that's the mark of somebody who needs professional help way beyond what I could do. I slapped him to put the fear of God into him to keep him in line. Was that the best solution? Probably not. Was it the solution I had? Yeah. No. Am I proud I did it? No. 
but I'll own it because I did it. And for the people who thought I was an ogre, those were pretty extreme circumstances what that kid did. Literally, he was on the second floor trying to drop bricks on people as they walked by. You know, I don't know how mean you have to be to, to, to break into people's homes that are so poor and then you pour acid all over their belongings, but that's a mean streak that I'm not very familiar with. Yeah. And the other kid, he dropped his pants and put his bare ass in a teacher's face. And he had no shame about it and was quite, I don't know, boastful about it. So I slapped him. Again, was that the best way to deal with it? Absolutely not. But I had, I was by myself. And I felt like if I didn't maintain such control, there would be really bad consequences. Like, like kids would get hurt. Not by me, but I'm just saying I really took it personally that I, these parents entrusted me with a hundred kids. I was responsible for the safety and the well-being of a hundred kids. And I did the best I could. And the best I could wasn't always good enough. But 25 years old with no training and no help. Right. And I had other staff members there and they were all useless. Useless. Sweet. Nice. Useless. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know, you know. It, it, it really, and, and one of the things that happened is I went from a call security where I went, you know what? The Searching Sub built that company. It's his. He can run it any damn way he wants. And if you're an adult and you want to work there, that's on you. But I'm in India with a bunch of kids who didn't ask to be here. Yeah. And what we're doing to these kids, they have no choice. They didn't ask for no laundry service. And that's bullshit if you're saying you're trying to make them tougher. You know, we can design a program that makes kids tough where they get to wear clean clothes and have enough food to eat. Yes. That's why I'm even more convinced that there was no method to the madness. Mm. It was just excuses in the moment for whatever bullshit we were doing that day. Yeah. Oh, it's all part of like, you know, this is what's supposed to happen. Blah, 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 blah. Right. No, I was there. I saw what was happening. You know, I saw, you know, I had kids there that shouldn't be there, that had learning disabilities, that had, that were on the spectrum, that, that really needed help that certainly I couldn't give them and neither could anybody else there. And so I also spent a lot of time focusing on a small number of kids that were trouble mm. and not trouble because they were bad kids, but trouble because of whatever they had going on, this program did not serve them. Right. You know, and we had kids who didn't belong there. They were kind, sweet and gentle. They were not hard. They were not tough. And there was no, this program had nothing for them. There was nothing soft or kind or gentle about this program. Get up early, do lots of physical everything, clean your room perfectly. Creativity, art, 
I don't, I don't know anything about that. Go sharpen a stick and run out in the field and spear pigs. I don't know. That's what the boys did. Like, like it was just weird. It was a very weird, weird, weird situation. And that's when my relationship with the Searching Sub started to deteriorate. Mm. That's when I really stopped hanging on. Not even hanging is not the word. That's when I stopped. I didn't stop listening to him right up until the time he died. I would listen to what he had to say, but I would listen with no emotion. I would evaluate it. And basically I was distrustful is a good word. Okay. I was distrustful of whatever he said. And then I would evaluate it and decide if I could trust it. And so at the end of that two years, I said, you know, I could stay here. I could, I could work at this school, but I'm not doing it like this. I'm not doing it for $500 a month, no income in the summer, nowhere to live. Like I'm not doing that. So I went to him and I said, I need $2,000 a month, which was nothing. But back then it was something because I could live pretty well on about $800 a month in India and I could bank $1,200 a month. And I went to him and I said, pay me this much a month. That's going to allow me to save money. That's going to be my retirement when I'm done. It's going to allow me to buy a house, pay for something. You know, I'll give you 20 years and I will come home to something. He didn't even get mad. He just said, I don't think this is going to work. And I smiled and we didn't, there was no harsh words. And I was like, okay. And I left. And that was that. The next year was that disastrous year. And remember I told you when Nanak Dave left that, that the patients ran the asylum. Yeah. That's what happened when I left. And I'm not blaming the staff what was there. They did the best they could, but it was a really challenging situation. And they came from somebody like me who just held on so tight. And then they went there and it just was like free and loose. And it was insane. And there were people at that school who should have never been there. Mm. I don't need to name names, but those names have been out there. And I don't know why they were kept at the school as long as they were. I don't, it was obvious to me that there was nothing about an education that was going on here. Scholastically, I should say. Okay. There was no, none of that was happening. So then I came home, I was home and then I went back. They said, things were really bad. And I was talking to my friends and they said, would you come back for one more year and help us? Oh, wow. And this is other staff member that are your friends. Mm -hmm. So I went back and it was me and Sahaj and Jagat Guru. So my last year was Jagat Guru's first year. Uh, and this is like 97? Something like that. It was the first year of MPA. So the first half of the year, all the kids were living in Nanak Navas, which is insane. Wow. And then halfway through the year, we moved them to MPA. And I was trying. Like, it was a really challenging situation to dial these kids back. The genie was out of the bottle. They had tasted their freedom. And they, they, they were not going to be corralled. I had some ideas of how we could have fixed that. The searching sub was not interested. He said, no kids are going home. 
said, okay. And then I don't know if you've heard of Commandant. Now this guy showed up. Okay. He was into yoga and meditation. He was a, at the time, I think a major in the Marine Corps in the reserves. He was supposed to be a hard ass. He showed up. Um, there were a number of really crappy things happening at the school. When you say that, do you mean like incidences that took place that were like with um, students? Things were out of control with the students, but things were really disjointed and disorganized at the leadership level. It was back, a mess. Back in America or in India? Both. Okay. We uncovered fraud in the building of the school. Nobody cared. Embezzlement. I knew back at 4S that there was embezzlement of funds. I had people telling me like, we know what the kids are paying and we don't, you know, the money's not all here. We don't know where it is, but it's not here. And again, I couldn't even focus on that because I was so holding on so tight to a hundred kids. Yeah. I, I didn't have the bandwidth to also deal with that. I was like, I hope you figure it out, man. I got to go back and take care of these kids. Um, and Commandant showed up and he came to me and he said, I swear to God, he'd never been to India. He was kind of new to the Dharma. He had worked at a call security. That's how he came to the Dharma through a call security. And he says, he tried this tactic. It was really bizarre. He's like, you know, there can only be one alpha and that's me. So you either have to be beta and you have to do what I say. You have to be number two or you got to go. Oh, it's like, oh, okay. So what I'm hearing here is we're going to have a real good working relationship, right? You know, like he's like, I want you to be my adjutant, adjutant. I don't know if you know what that means, but in the military, he's like, I'm the commanding officer. I issue an order. You make it happen. It's like, oh, oh. So we've gone to a Marine Corps structure that does not go two ways. <laughs> yeah. I basically told me to go fuck himself. And I spent, you know, I, I tried to help a little bit, but it, it just didn't work. And it was no longer a good fit. And for years after that, the Sersing Sub would always say to me, that idea to send Commandant over that you gave me, that was so good. Like, I never gave you that idea. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was not me. It was a disaster. He was, he was pretty bad. Wow. He was pretty bad. So that was kind of the end of it for me. Um, and at that point I said, I'm, I'm. Meanwhile, though, to context the India, you had said the embezzlement thing was going on. There had already been some identifications of pedophile teachers, right? There were those incidents. Hadn't happened yet. That, okay. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that one did, right. That was at 4S when I was there. Right. Holy shit. I forgot. There was two, two incidents that happened. One during the year, I get a phone call and it's Prem from the surgeon shop staff. And I'm like, hi Prem, how's it going? Like, it's very rare for me to get a phone call. So I'm like, okay. And I could hear in her voice, she was very stiff. Hmm. So I'm like, oh, I know what this is. This is you sitting wherever you are and the surgeon shop's right next to you. And this is a very formal, something's about, some shit's about to go down. Mm. And I'm like, okay, what's up? She said, I have to ask you some questions. I said, shoot, Prem. Like, I know Prem on a first name basis. We're, I don't know if we're friends, but we certainly know each other. And she said, um, is it true the reason you stay in India is so that you can flirt with all the senior girls? 
I'm like, it was so out of left field. It was so bizarre. I wasn't even offended. I was just like, uh, no, <laughs> I was kind of laughing, joking about it. Mm. She said, well, is it true that you're engaging in oral sex with the two senior girls that the two, the two senior most girls? I'm like, uh, no. And I said, if you even have to ask the question, why am I still working here? Mm. Like, if you think that's even something that is even possible that I would be involved in or even thinking about, why am I still here? Like, it was so out there that I wasn't even offended, right? Like, there wasn't even a kernel of anything for it to land on to make it, like, sting or, or like, oh, my God, oh. It was so bizarre. She's like, okay, thank you, and hung up. I wasn't even offended. I was just like, what the fuck was that? And I went in the room and I, I told Sahaj and Jiwan about it and just laughed. And Jiwan was horrified. And I was just like, I, I can't even get mad at that. I don't even know what that's about. You know, it's like, you, you, ever, you ever been accused of something that you know you have absolutely nothing? There's nothing to it. And you're just like, I'm clean. I'm good, man. This is funny. Like, come do your worst. Come dig it. I was told later that somebody went and told the Searching Sub that I said these things. I never got it confirmed, but it was bizarre. And then my second year of 4S, I came home after the school year, I was home for the summer and I get a call and they said, did you know that this teacher was sexually abusing these boys? Oh. They asked me this. No, and, and it wasn't the Searching Sub who called, it was somebody else. I said, you really think I would have kept quiet about that? Like, I'm, I'm insulted you're even asking me this. Mm. Of course I did not know. Like, what do you mean? Like, that's a bizarre question. Again, if you really think that I knew about it, why am I still employed? Right. So I was furious. And I called a couple of people. And again, I'm not going to drop names, but they said, yeah, we knew he was like that. We were afraid it might come out. What? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that's what's doubly damning. Yeah. Like if you've hired a teacher and you've done your due diligence and there's nothing in their background and they seem like a stand-up, you know, honorable, you know, and, and, and they've got no criminal record, how would you know? Right? How would you know? And then if it happens, you're like, oh my God, and you're, you're out of left field. But to have somebody say, yeah, we were afraid that might happen. Terrible. That just means that it's active cover-up, which we, we've been hearing about. Oh, I was furious. Years later, I found out that, you know, they said, oh yeah, we were, he was really nice to you when you came home. We were afraid he was, I was like, yeah, no, nothing. I had no idea. <laughs> that was when I was 18. I had no idea, but apparently it was a known thing. And nobody bothered to tell me, like, even if somebody had called and said, forget official channels. How about somebody just call me up and say, hey, you didn't hear it from me, but keep an eye out. That might have been something. Yeah. Somebody thinks I would have looked the other way. No. Oh. Never. So, you know, there's so many little 
things that happened over the years that in our conversation, I won't even remember them all. But they, you know, they all, they all just erode. You know, they just, over the years, they just eroded my sense of who we were and what we were about. And probably one of, you know, I told you we grew up with these hypocrisies around us that we couldn't articulate, but we were taking it in. The other thing that I noticed and became more and more prominent and harder and harder for me to reconcile was our willful neglect to be professional Mm. in anything we did. I'm the type of person that if I go to something, I want to leave it better than I found it. If I'm going to ride for the brand, if I'm going to be at a call, let's build it. Let's make it better. Let's constantly strive to make it better. If we're going to go to, if I'm going to work at this school, let us strive to make it better. Maybe it's not good now. Maybe it's, it's never going to be as good as we want it, but every year it should get incrementally better. Right. Maybe we can't afford to hire the best teachers right now or this and that. Show me your five-year plan. Show me your 10-year plan. Show me your 20-year plan. Don't show me that fucking temple of steel. (laughs) How about we spend money on real things like, you know, accredited teachers. Now I proposed a long time ago. Why don't we pay for the education of some of our students who then get childhood development, child psychology, educational degrees, and they come back and run this school. I understand that we're a bunch of hippies and that, you know, we're making it better, but let's make it better. Let's make the solstice site better instead of entering the solstice site through the back of the kitchen next to all the trash cans. <laughs> it's, it, it's a total lack of professionalism in the way we treated each other, mm. in the way we ran our businesses, mm. in our sloppy communications. Seva is Seva and Seva is a wonderful thing, yes. but it needs to be selfless not coerced and cudgeled, <laughs> you know, like not it, it, obligated. Right. But I mean, that's what I saw. Yeah. That's what I saw over the years was a, a real lack of professionalism and a, a willful act of disregard to not reinvest in ourselves, to not reinvest in our youth, to not reinvest in our businesses, to not strive to make them better. It's okay to have humble beginnings. It's okay to come from nothing. And it's really kind of scrappy and, you know, whatever for, for years, but you're, you're striving towards something better. And we were not doing that. I never saw that. And that really started to wear on me. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. And so I finished that last year in India I was in, a good friend of mine was living at the Searching Subs house in New Zamedine. And he wanted to go home that summer. And I was like, I don't have anything to do. And I don't know what possessed me, but I said, I'll, I'll take care of the house for you. So I spent the summer in New Delhi by myself. I don't know what I was thinking, 130 degrees. It was a heat wave that summer. <laughs> Nobody to talk to. I was just there by myself. 
So I had a lot of time to think. And I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm just done with this. I'm just done with this. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm not necessarily done with the Sangit. I'm not done with being a Sikh, but I'm just doing this my way, the way I've always done it. Mm. You know, I was the kid at school who was, you know, the surgeon shop was like, please wear white. I'm like, no, I'm wearing blue. I don't like white. I don't feel good in white. You know, please don't wear a Damala. No, I don't know if you know what that is, but that's the turban the Hungs wear. It's like, no, that's what I got to do. Like I, I, I had always to a certain degree done it my own way. Yeah. You know, the, the surgeon saw once was talking about heavy metal. I don't know if he regretted this. He's like, who has any? I'm like, I, play me the hardest thing you have. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay, here's some Slayer, Rain and Blood. Let's see how you deal with that. <laughs> His eyes got wide and he just looked at me. He's like, you can turn it off now. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing it your way. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. After my affair, he badgered me for, for months. And every time he asked me questions, I knew they were rhetorical questions. And then one time in New Delhi, was sitting in the living room and everybody was there and I had been around him. So I knew the routine. And he's, I knew this time he actually asked me a real question that I was expected to answer. And I said, sir, I'll tell you anything you want to know, but not in front of all these people. I'm not, I'll talk, I'm an open book. I'm not talking about these other ladies in front of all these people. It's not going to happen. So typically, you know, every once in a while somebody would say this and, People slowly started to get up and he's like, nah, everybody sit. And we went in the next room and he said, I'm bringing her with me. I grew up with her, you know, like as a witness, I was like, sure, I don't care. And he starts telling me in no uncertain terms, he said, I want you to stay in India and I want you to study and I want you to become a Granthi and I want you to become a Ragi and I want you to be fully trained and I want you to stay in India and teach in India and do in India what I did in America. You're the one. I said, sir, I can't do it. I said, I miss my mountains too much. I said, I, I know you think it's stupid, but I miss skiing. I miss mountain biking. I miss my mountains. I miss the dirt. And this isn't the life I want. Your life is not what I want. I don't want to be like you. Again, it was all very cordial, very polite. Mm. Everything was sir. I said, sir, I, I said, what do you do all day? I said, you, you're in a living room full of people. You pretend to be interested in whatever stupid thing is on the TV so that people will give you a few minutes peace because otherwise they're asking you, who should I marry? What ring should I wear? What car should I buy? Should I buy this house? Because people don't want to make any decisions for themselves. I said, and the one thing that you enjoy doing is probably going to kill you in the end. And that's eating. Because he was overweight and out of shape and all that. And I remember he sits up in his chair and he puts his hand out just like this. And he goes, leans in. He goes, would you kindly shut the fuck up? <laughs> and that really summed up our relationship. I wasn't mad at him anymore. I just wasn't going to do it. Mm. I mean, there was no, I wasn't, but I didn't know about all of this. Right. Right. 
it right? was this takes it to another your life and your experience yeah. but not the ground. I, I was i was done so then c24 he comes to india i'm traveling with him and things were getting really awkward um he bought a whole bunch of antique weapons because he loved weapons and they brought me down to look at them. I looked at them and all I said, they're all fake. And his son had bought them, you know, and this and that, and they called me a liar and all this stuff. I'm like, I, I don't care. I'm a liar. Fine. Can I go back to my video game? <laughs> I, mean, I just, it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't register anymore. It didn't land. There's a few other things along the way that I'm remembering that I should tell you. Please. One time when I traveled with him to Canada on security, we were coming back through to Portland and a woman meets him at the airport and she's crying and he steps off to the side and has a conversation with her and he calls me over. I was security. He's like, the guys from Eugene have me now. I want you to go with her to her house, get some stuff, meet us in, in Eugene. I said, okay, sure. So we drive to Eugene. We're there for a day. He calls me the next morning early, which was unheard of generally. So, you know, it's something it's out of the ordinary. So I come over there and like my hair down and, you know, I was playing video games or something at my friend's house and had jeans and a t-shirt on. I come in, he goes, this woman here, you're, I'm going to leave and you're going to, you're going to stay with her in Portland and you're going to help her quit her job and pack up all her belongings and you're going to move her to Española. Well, okay. And he said, you see how you look right now? Don't change a thing. Don't put on a turban. This is how I want you to look. It's okay. He said, she doesn't want to do this. And you have to be very nice to her and do whatever it takes to get her to move. And then it was explained to me, if that meant sleeping with her, then you sleep with her. I was like, Whoa, whoa, you arranged my marriage a couple of years ago and now you want me to sleep with somebody to get them to move to Española, if required. Wow. And I knew somebody else, a very good friend of mine that he told him to do the same thing, keep somebody happy. So I kind of knew it was all malleable. It was all a double standard. It was... If he needed something, if it was for the mission, if it was part of the bigger picture, sacrifices could be made. Mm. Then another thing I'll tell you that was very telling. Right at the end when I was working at a call, I had a, a, a boss. She was completely incompetent. She didn't belong there. She didn't know what she was doing. It wasn't her fault. Seriously, so I put her there. But she had no humility whatsoever. Her way of dealing with not knowing what to do was arrogance and trying to be a bully. Mm. And she was a little bit younger than me. Hated her. Hated her. Mm. Because she couldn't recognize her own shortcomings and took it all out on us. Instead of saying, hey, you know why I'm here. You know, can we get this done? It was just like, 
you know, and I, I get that she had, she was under tremendous pressure. Turns out, I think she was also being raped or whatever we're calling it, you know? Um, So we were getting yelled at by the searching sub almost daily. We'd have to go to the ranch to get yelled at. And it got to the point where I was like, Hey, it's two o'clock. We got to be at the ranch by two 30 to get yelled at. Let's get over there. Like, I ain't give a shit. Like it's just getting yelled at again. So I walk in the ranch that particular day and, you know, I really took it to heart that we bow to no man. You only bow to the guru. So I would never touch his feet ever. So I walk in the living room and he says, get over here. My body language was probably a hundred percent. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> can we just get yelled at and we can leave? <laughs> you know, he says, get over here. Massage my feet. I'm like, okay, right? I don't get massages. I don't give massages. So I'm like doing it and I'm, pr- I'm sure I'm awful at it. And he says, what are you doing? I'm like, massaging your feet? Like, again, I don't care. Like, we're just jumping through more hoops. I don't care. He says, come here. And he gets up out of the chair and we start walking to the back of the ranch house toward anybody who's ever been in there. You go through the laundry room. And there was a bedroom back there. And then there was a hallway to the Gudwara. We walk into the bedroom. He opens the door. I walk in first. I walk in front of him. He hit me so fucking hard in the back of the neck and then punched me in the head. I saw stars. I hit the floor and he kicked me really hard. I mean, I'm on the ground. He kicked me to a fetal position. I'm not small. I had body armor on. I was wearing a gun. And he looks down at me and says, you're fucking useless. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I was shocked. I was like, oh, you want to be real? And I got, I jumped up and I said, give me one minute to explain. And he turned around and he looked at, he just looked at me and looked at his watch. I said, you really want to turn this company around? Fire the boss, get some people who know what they're doing. You actually want to get this thing to work? We need to do this, 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 this. You know, like, we can do this. And he looked me up and down. He said, I will burn that fucking business to the ground around her before I ever fire her. Your whole job is to make sure she looks good. And walked out. Wow. He wasn't interested in making that business better. You have enough of those experiences. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, okay. I see what we're doing here. I'm actually busting my ass and trying to make something better and everything's working against me. I'm not saying every individual was, but like the system, the system. was not designed to make this place better. Right. You know? So the weird thing is like, It didn't even hurt. Like it was worth it to me to have him hit me that hard. If I got to have a moment of an honest conversation and say what I needed to say, that was worth it to me Mm. to get it off my chest. If that's, if that's what it took to get him to actually open up and listen to me for a minute, I felt so much better just being honest. 
being able to speak honestly. It was interesting. As a whole, I'm telling you, I have forgotten more than I remember. I believe you. I believe you. And also the span of time. I mean, from being a kid to like all these stages, it's just, it's so much potency. And, and I want to also say that as you remember more, as there's other things, I, I will always welcome you back. We can have another conversation so we don't have to feel like every, every bit of it gets squeezed in. Um, but I really want to say, I also appreciate you giving us so much richness of all the different lenses of you. You know, we all have unique stories in this particular context. Mine is more unique than most, not all. Your lens, the closeness, there's so many reasons why what you're saying makes sense, you know, and I want to keep hearing more, you know, it's like, well, let me tell you, the next chapter was I'm in Nizamuddin in New Delhi and I came downstairs and I told him, I'm going home and I'm going to paramedic school. I'm done. And he thought that was the dumbest idea ever and started calling me Medicaid. Hey, fucking, where's Medicaid? Why is Medicaid? He loved nicknames and things like that. He's like, where's Medicaid? Uh, fucking Medicaid's going to go. And I didn't care. I was like, yes, yeah, sir, that's what I got to do. And part of that was like, I said, sir, I, I really want to learn. I'm willing to go to Grunthy school. I'm willing to go to Raggy school. How do I make a, how do you pay? What are you going to pay me? How do I, how do I get by? He said, Oh no, you need to do business on the side and fend your, for yourself. And I, I was like, I'm not a businessman. Like at this point, I'm 28 years old. And I'm like, I know myself. I know myself enough to know my limitations. I'm not doing that. And so I didn't do it. I turned him down. Went to Permag school. Came now, out, started working. Now you're still well, married. And did G1 and you both work in India when you were working in India or were only you the there? The first two years. Okay. Then when I went back that last year, I was by myself. Okay. And then you come back and then she's wait. So you go back home and then you go to paramedic school. Go to paramedic school. And it was quite telling that at one point I've been working for a couple of years and he said to Juwan, oh, your husband's so stupid. He went to paramedic school. You know, it's so dumb. He could have been working for me. And then he says, how much does he make? And Juwan told him, it was a decent salary. And he goes, that's nothing. What do we pay to call security? And someone told me, he goes, oh. That's <laughs> what so I say. Like, he wasn't as, as in touch as people gave him credit for. Mm. He didn't pay bills. He didn't know what a decent paycheck was, you know, why, why would he, right. when was the last time he paid a bill at that point? Yep. So I'm a paramedic and um, his health is starting to deteriorate. So I'm working full-time on an ambulance. I'm good at what I do. I don't mind saying I was, I'm really fucking good at what I do. I mean, really, I, I got no problem tooting my own horn a little bit. I'm a good medic. <laughs> I found out I'm way better with medicine than I am with a gun. <laughs> so yeah, and it's what took me down the path. I mean, a segue when I was working for a call security and was the surgeon child bodyguard and it was pretty new to it. I had one of those four in the morning epiphanies where I'm like, I'm carrying a gun. Am, am I willing to kill another human being? 
And am I going to be okay with that? And I decided the short version is I decided I was. And I also knew that I wasn't, I didn't know how I would react if that ever happened, but I was willing to do it. And then the thought popped in my head that if I was willing to take a life, I should learn how to save one. And that's when I went to my first training, you know, as an EMT and then went on from there, found out I was really good at it. So here I am working as a paramedic, really enjoying it. And the surgeon sobs health starts to deteriorate and they start bringing me in to help. And there's a couple of nurses in the ashram and they were super afraid to put an IV in him because he was such a baby about needles. He was so incredibly afraid of needles. And I was like, you're a big, strong man. Give me your hand. Boom. <laughs> like, I didn't give a shit. Like, you can't handle a needle? Like, harden the fuck up, son. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all those cheese sticks and pizza and all that shit is what got you here. Like, all you know. All that Diet Coke over lecture, you know, that fake sugar. <laughs> yeah. You know what he used to do at the movies? You know how you'd get popcorn? Yeah, with the M&Ms in the popcorn. Not just the M&Ms. Oh, what was else? Layer of popcorn, full order of nachos, full box of M&Ms, popcorn on top so the staff wouldn't see it. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. He ate awful. Um, and that's what did him in. And so well, um, things really changed between us during that time because he, you know, there was a lot of little things, little stories and stuff, but like, I started driving him 90 miles to Albuquerque and I'm in the back taking care of him because he's having heart attacks and I'm taking to the heart hospital and the, you know, and I'm just looking at this guy going, Oh yeah, this is the end of your life. This is how it goes. Like you are miserable. You are missing toes from diabetes. You have one kidney. You're having heart attacks. You you're in constant pain. You are drugged to the gills. You are like, this was a miserable life. You know, I'm like, I forgive you. Hurry up and die. Do yourself a favor and die. I didn't say that to him. That was like my prayer. I mean, like compassionately, I was saying, hurry up and die. You have no quality of life. What are you hanging on for? Like, there's nothing here. And I felt really, somehow it felt good that I got to take care of him at the end. Mm. Like for all the shit you did to me and the people I know and I watched you do, I'm going to be real big and have a big heart and I'm going to take care of you. Mm. And I'm going to watch you die. Wow. And, and that was a conscious thought. Yeah. That was a very conscious thought on my part. And it got to the point where our conversations were so frank the staff started calling me up and saying, would you please just come by and visit for a few minutes? I was like, why me? And they said, because we know you don't want anything from him and you're not going to be a drain on his energy. You're a distraction and a couple of minutes of entertainment for him. He really enjoys seeing you and you're not going to try to hang out and watch TV all afternoon or spend more time. Yeah. I was like, okay. I'd stop by once in a while and, you know, I remember sitting down. I didn't really want to be there. It wasn't my place to hang out with him. I was never felt like I was somebody who needed to hang around. It's like, 
you weren't my spiritual teacher. And that's, that was also a very conscious thing. He was never my spiritual teacher. He was somebody who I thought was serving the Dharma and I was willing to protect him. Mm. That's what the relationship was. Very significant. And so, you know, and I explained that to my mom, he's your spiritual teacher. I love that line from Malcolm X. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Yeah. That's how I felt about him. Like, Motherfucker, you landed on me. You know, <laughs> I, nobody asked me if you want to be my spiritual teacher. I don't want a spiritual teacher. Not just you. I don't want anybody. Mm. Don't need one. Thank you very much. If I ever do, you'll be top of my list to come talk to and maybe explore. But until that day, don't want one. So, you know, here he is. He's dying. I'm taking care of him. I'm getting to know him better on my terms. And, you know, they called me up after the, the, would you visit? And I remember like walking in there and like, you know, just trying to make conversation. He's watching some old stupid world war II movie about Rommel, you know, the, the, the German general in North Africa. And, and I'm a history guy. I love history. I devour history, okay. history and politics and, and, and sociology. I love what makes people tick. Like it's fascinating to me. And so I just said, Oh yeah. Hey, Rommel, you know, interesting fact about him is Hitler held him in such high regard that when he tried to assassinate him, he let him kill himself rather than be hung, which was, you know, a horrible death for a you know traitor. Immediately the hanger honors, the guys and anyone who knows who hung around in the living room, they had to one up me because I said something they didn't know. And I was just like, yeah, okay, cool. You guys, you know, I must be wrong. I'm out. Like, that's how much I didn't want to be around. Like, I didn't care. Like, if there was a conversation to be had, fine. But I'm, I'm not into, like, proving who I am to you so that I have a place here. Like, this is your spiritual teacher, and you guys need to, like, make somebody else look stupid so you look good. Fuck you. Whatever. I don't care. I'm out. You got nothing I want. Mm -hmm. And so I left. And then they called me up, and they said, look, he's going to – right right at the end, they said, he's going to die really soon. Would you transport his body? Wow. When he dies, will you be on call? Will you? And I called my boss at the ambulance. And I talked to him. He said, yeah, you can do that. And so two days before he died, something like that, I came into the dome. We had to do something, you know, push some meds, start an IV, do something. I don't know. And I refused to talk down to him at that point. I was just like, how you doing, sir? Just talking in a normal voice. And he could only whisper. And I leaned over to listen to what he had to say. And he said, still well enough to kick your ass. Oh, wow. And I just stood up and I just laughed. I said, I have no doubt, sir. No doubt at all. Okay, what are we here to do here today? And that was my goodbye. And I felt at the time, I felt really good about where we were at. He died two days later. I took his body to the morgue. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but it was very surreal. So he died at night. A couple of guys came over to help me. We picked him up and we almost threw his body in the air. He had lost so much weight. He was so emaciated. He was the shadow of the guy he used to be. And I knew him and he was a big guy and he was under a bunch of blankets. So I couldn't see how much he had wasted away. And we picked him up using the bed sheet, which is a common we picked up his body using the bed sheet because it's a just it's already under him. It's easy. Just peel it back from the mattress and lift up. 
And I am not joking when I say we almost threw him in the air. Because, because it was the velocity me. of your pull, like exactly because so it was heavy. Three of the other guys helping me were all Sikhs. So we all knew him and we were expecting a heavy lift. Right. Wow. Right. So, you know, it, it was like, it was very significant when he died. So I called these other guys and I said, you guys want to come help me? And they were like, oh yeah. Yeah. So we drive him to Santa Fe to the funeral home, but we don't go into the funeral home. We back into an alley and there's a walk-in cooler in an alley at night behind a funeral home. And I take his body and I put it on a shelf in a refrigerator in a steel metal, looked like it could have been an industrial kitchen instead it stored bodies. And I put him on a shelf and I shut the door and I'm standing in this dark alley looking at the door of a walk-in cooler going, that's quite an end, buddy. <laughs> Where's all your power and your jewels and your cars and your people and it's all fucking gone mm. and that was that was the end of that i didn't go to his funeral um at that point i had two daughters and from the time they were old enough to even start talking about these things you know it was he was complicated there was a lot i didn't like about him you know, and I said they needed to evaluate for themselves if they were interested. Because at that point, the only thing they were exposed to was the teachings, not him. Right? Because they were too little. So by the time he died, he, they're small still. Yeah. Okay. And they so were like, I said, now no. infusing them to start thinking about what it is that they want to take on. Absolutely. Because they, they knew they wanted to go to school in India. Because and how, how old did they know? Oh God, by the time they were seven or eight, they knew they wanted to go. I said they weren't going to go till junior high. Okay. Um, turns out they went in seventh and eighth grade. I didn't think they were going to go till probably ninth or 10th, but they want, they really wanted to go earlier, but it was always like, he's a mixed bag. You're going to have to decide for yourself what works. Now, this is before you actually had that person come to you and tell you about yeah. the, right. That, yeah. This is your evaluation, yeah. your experiences. Okay. And so it was very interesting to see my kids go to the school and be exposed to all that I was raised with. I was very careful and monitored them closely about, you know, what they were getting taught, what they believed, what they didn't. I pushed back on things. I kept saying, you know, you, you, try it. You don't like it, drop it. You don't ever have to do it again. Maybe you'll do it in 20 years. That's entire, it's your life to live. You don't need a spiritual teacher. You don't need any. But if, 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 if yoga, meditation, diet, any of it works for you, just evaluate it objectively for you. I don't give a shit what anybody tells you. Um, and it's been, it's been good. It's, it's been good. You know, I, I know, you know, we're dealing with all, you know, there's, there's a, a huge fracture, obviously, in our community right now. Yeah. For simplicity, I'll say there's deniers and there's believers. Right. And I don't know why we can't all just get along and both people be right. Why can't someone who denies all of this say, I can't deal with it. He's still my spiritual teacher. He brought me to the feet of the guru. Yoga and meditation worked for me. And I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm not going to call you a liar. And for the people who, who believe all of it, 
I want to hear some compassion from them and say, he did these things. He's no longer my teacher. I can't deal. Fuck him. But you get to have your experience. Just don't call me a liar. Because the same person, the same person can be different for different people. And I don't have a problem with that because we are humans and we are complicated. Yeah, and I think you must have a friend that other people can't stand. And you're like, this friend has always been true to me. My experience with them has been positive. I'm not calling you a liar, but I'm not willing to break off a friendship based on what you say, because that hasn't been my experience. Obviously, it's very simple. It's, it's complicated. I just simplified it. But I just want to hear some compassion from both sides. Mm. Because he can be all things to different people. I know people will say that the yoga and the meditation they did and being brought to the feet of Guru literally saved their life. And who am I to say they're wrong? No doubt about it. You know, I think that's what's most important about really sharing our own experience is realizing that all we can do is let people have their own and all we can do is speak to our own and right, and not call other people a liar and not tell other people how they have to feel about it for or against you know I, I completely agree with that what I will say is that in a culture that's trained us to not talk out loud that becomes challenging because one might not say you're a liar. You might just be saying they're trying to stop me from speaking what's out loud. And, totally. and so and, that's, and, that's where it gets a little convoluted on the side totally. simplistically. And some of them are trying to stop people from talking Absolutely. and that is wrong. Absolutely. So I hear the agreement. I, sides. I want everybody to take the high road. Yeah. And I, I know that's a, that's a tall order and I'm going to be a little crude here. But, you know, my dad laughs. He goes to AA meetings and says, this is, this is my son's advice. He said, just show up and don't be a dick. And that's a good start. <laughs> what a great month. Show up and don't be a dick. Really you know, we could go pretty far if we just, you know, if we just started there. Like, it pains me. Like, I feel a very deep sense of betrayal. And I know some people are going to think I'm waffling maybe, or I'm not, I'm not hard enough. I want to be very clear. I believe all of the allegations. He is a rapist. He was a master manipulator. He used people. I very much believe that. And at the same time, I saw acts of kindness from him. I saw acts of generosity. I witnessed them myself. I saw him give money to people who were in need. And he never saw them again. I saw what I thought were genuine tears of pain when he heard what happened to some people or things didn't go right. I don't believe he was all bad and I don't believe he was all good. I believe he was a human being. His motivations I can't speculate on because I wasn't in his head. But he can be a complicated human being and we are good enough people to be able to deal with that and parse that and say that he can be all of those things. And if I want to say fuck him, which I do, my experience with him is he betrayed me. He betrayed everyone. There are so many people standing there with egg on their face that were such devoted followers of his who thought they were serving the mission. And he, he left them holding a, a paper bag full of shit that they have to explain because he has just cast doubt on everything he ever did. Hmm. 
and fuck him. He's dead. I don't care. I care about all the loyal people that he left behind that are going, how do I deal with this? Right. How do I make excuses for this? How do I justify this? How do I reconcile this? How do I look my kids in the eye and say, I sent you to India on that man's word because he was a master and you had a shit childhood and I don't have a relationship with you. That's heavy, heavy stuff. Right. And I feel for everybody and for all of my tough exterior and all my super I'm fucking tough and all that. I feel that pain from everybody. Yeah. And the medic in me wishes I could just run around and take care of everyone and fix it. Yeah. And it's so shitty. Cool. You know, and I feel that pain from so many people. Friends of 40 years don't want to talk to me because I believe this. Like, really? Our friendship means that little? I'm not going to try to convince you to believe what I believe. Why can't we still be friends? Mm. Fr you know, he has, he has blown up families. Mm. Relationships of how long? And at the very least, he was not honorable. How is this man that we put on a pedestal who was supposed to be all knowing, who wanted you to marry somebody because he could see your destiny or wanted you to do something because he could see your destiny, but couldn't see the people he put in charge for UI. We're going to rape, pillage and plunder the Dharma. How do, how do people reconcile that shit? Yeah. Like he, you know, he's left his wife and kids standing there going, our father, my husband, holy shit. Like, what a supremely selfish act. To say the least. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I just don't, you know, this is how I feel right now. This is not how I felt five years ago. This isn't how I felt 10 years ago. I don't know how I'm going to feel in 10 years. Thank you, we you. all evolve as human beings, I hope. <laughs> all we can hope. Yeah. Thank and you for your honesty here, your brutal honesty. If I don't have that, I mean, what do I have if I don't have that? I know. You know, I mean, I'm, I've got so much I'm still working on in my own personal life. You know, it has been a brutal marriage. And I wouldn't say it's all good now. You know, I've been married for 30 years to somebody that I never wanted to marry. And I'm not talking out of turn. G1 knows this. You know, the shit I learned in therapy, you know, to be able to just forgive her because she was 18. In my brain, I, I, you know, I didn't see her as 18. You know, I just saw her as the, this little girl, this, this woman who was selfishly got what she wanted. You know, I spent so many years being mad at her when really she was manipulated like the rest of us. Right. She bore a whole lot of abuse coming her way from me because not her fault. She didn't deserve that. You know, my children didn't deserve their mother to be treated like that. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like, it's unconscionable, you know? And, and, but if I tell that story too many times, I hate myself. Cause I'm not going to dwell on the whole victim bullshit. It's like, yes, I was literally a victim. We've identified that. 
move the fuck on. Like there's a life to live. There's things that need to get done. And I alluded to it earlier, but I really mean it. Everybody has to find out their way, but you know, there are some books that have been written by Holocaust survivors who forgave the Nazis. Yeah. Forgiving is the most powerful thing you can do because it allows you to move on. You're not exonerating them for what they've done. You're not giving them a pass. You're doing it for you. This reminds me of a quote by Viktor Frankl talking yeah. about what you're talking about. And that's one of my favorite quotes is that like the last, it's, I'm not going to say it right, but just that last choice that we have, mm-hmm. you know, that last, like that is our will. That is our ultimate will. I mean, I don't get a, re- a redo on my life. Right. So why dwell on that? And he's been dead for 15 plus years. So who's really suffering if I'm angry? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm left like being a miserable asshole to my, my sister and my children and my friends and the people who mean something to me in my life. Like I'm just bringing everybody down. Like it's, it's, it's like I need to actively work toward getting past all of this. Mm. You know, and if I can help a few people along the way, and I'd just like to say for anybody who's listening to this podcast, if I wrong you and I can somehow rectify that, I can somehow help with that. If you need to call me out on something that you think I'm dodging or I didn't own up to, um, please reach out. Whatever you got to say, I don't care how brutal it is, I can take it. And if that is somehow going to be cathartic for you, I owe you that. I'm not on social media, so everybody knows how to get a hold of me. I, I don't want to put it on this podcast, but it's not hard to reach me. You know, it's not hard to reach me. I, just, I don't have Facebook. I'm not on the social media stuff. It's not my, it's not my thing. But, you know, I, I would fly to whatever city you're in and meet you in an anonymous coffee shop and sit down and have a conversation. I owe you that if I really wronged you what, you know, you name the terms. And so, um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for letting me tell this. I didn't want to write it. It's too long. And I've wanted to talk about it. And I just didn't see the forum. And I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm really grateful for your honesty and your willingness to share and to give us a glimpse into just a glimpse even, you know, um, into this 50 year encapsulation that you've shared with us. And um, it's a lot. Honor you and your, your wife and your family and the vulnerability that you're exposing and sharing. And and we, um, I just want to acknowledge you both. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I also want to ask you a quick question to kind of tie it back. You described a moment where you remember like you no longer had your own will, that you had given it up, this power up. And do you remember a distinct time when that actually was you choosing that back? Was that that house in India or is it a different time when you start saying I'm choosing again? You know, First of all, let me be clear. I was not conscious that I lost my will. Of course. Thank you. Retrospectively, that's what I realized happened. At least that's my assessment of it. Um, And that's actually fairly recent that I figured that out in the last five years. Okay. I mean, I I didn't know what to label it. I didn't, I didn't know what to call it so that I could, you know, really focus on it, but I knew it was uh, such a seminal event in my life. 
It was sure. a big deal. It was, it was, it was a turning point. Um, and getting it back was a process. Okay. There was no, there was no moment. It's like, it's like, a, you know, anything about domestic violence? I do. Took me a long time to understand domestic violence working on the ambulance. I just couldn't understand why somebody would stay with somebody who was that abusive. And people kept telling me this in all my professional trainings, you know, and I had to hear it. I don't know how many times to finally understand it. They said, leaving is not an event. It's a process. It's not like you just woke up one morning and went, yeah, this is really dumb. I'm out. That's not, that's not how domestic violence ends. You know, it's, it's, it's a gradual awareness of where you're at and how unhealthy it is and how it's not serving you. It doesn't work. And eventually you get to the point where you're out, you know, that's, that's how I describe it. And I'm not saying that I'm equating my situation to domestic violence, just to be clear. I just think it's a good analogy when you're, when I'm describing this process of like this growing, like putting the pieces of a puzzle together and starting to see the full picture. Like, yeah, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't believe you anymore. I'm not, and it was very interesting and I'm, I'm, I'm actually grateful that it happened that way because I also didn't have this huge burning anger where I had to convince everyone else that they had to see it my way. It's like, you, you guys got to do what you got to do, I guess. I mean, like, I'm not going to do this, but, you know, I have dear, dear, dear brothers who are still in this and very devoted and I would happily bleed for them, you know? Yes, I do. And I, there is no hard feelings between us. They don't see it the way I see it, but they are still my brothers. Yeah. You know, their families, you know, I, you know, I think that was leaving or their experience is not the problem. They lived it the way they lived it. They experienced it the way they experienced it. My relationship with them is entirely independent. Yes. And they are, they are my brothers and a few sisters, you know, I, do. I mean, I, I it, so this doesn't have to blow this up. So we found out that this guy was a fraud. My relationship with you that was just created is not a fraud. Correct. My relationship with my friends that I grew up with in this Dharma and people I've known forever, that's not a fraud. Correct. People that have nothing but love and are trying to live as Sikhs and be a part of this community and they value it and they get, that's not a fraud. And so for the people who are trying to salvage this thing, one of my closest friends, Sahesh, man, that guy is pure as the driven snow. His intentions are such. Yeah. He is trying to salvage what is good. Yeah. You know, my, my older sister and mentor, Shanti, beyond reproach as far as I'm concerned. And whatever she's working on now, whatever she's trying to do, it is, it is from the right place. And there are so many other people like that. They, the people that are trying to salvage this thing, I believe them. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to do that. I don't feel called to do that. I don't want to see it burned down, but I'm not in a place where I want to participate in that. 
But if Sahesh called me up, I probably couldn't say no, bastard. <laughs> you know, all honesty. <laughs> can't, can't, can't turn a brother down. Right. You know, if, they call, if they're asking for help, I can't turn them down. I think that you, this is the complexity of the truth. You know, this is the complexity of our, the relationships, the complexity of our community and our connection and our connectivity. I, I agree. And I, I just, I, I hate to see it boiled down into these very simplistic good or bad or yeah, whatever. Actions that aren't even relating. It's just the worst. Life is way more complicated than that. People are way more complicated than that. And I, yeah. you know, I do. for everybody who has to walk away, I, I blessings. I hope they yeah. find whatever they're looking for in all sincerity. I hope they find peace and happiness and they, you know, that their life is fulfilled and that they go on to do wonderful things. And that every one of our processes is going to be ours and own that, you know, that's all we can do is own our own process and own our own stance and anchor there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, do you want to share with us a lead into your song? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, like your last guest, what we share is heavy and hard music. Like it, to me, it's like Ritalin to an ADD patient. If mm -hmm. I want to meditate, if I want to calm down, if I want to feel powerful, if I want to feel peaceful, the heavier it is, the more it soothes me. There was a, a radio show called Music to Soothe the Savage Beast. And my nickname in high school was Savage. And I don't know, I just, and so I didn't know anything about this music. I was 12 or 13 years old, I was living in the ashram in Española with guardians. And uh, uh, a, a friend of mine who was also living with guardians, uh, do you know Sadhu? I sure do. I yeah, Sadhu's a couple of years older than me and he loaned me three cassettes. And this song is the first song off the first cassette I played. And I remember I put it on, my back was to it and I heard these first notes and I was rooted to the floor, mm. like had never been so focused in all of my life. And my whole reaction was, what is this? And whatever this is, I need so much more of it in my life. And it was such a moment in my life. I will never forget it. The opening chords and notes to this song still send chills down my spine. And, um, it's certainly not the hardest thing I listened to, but it was it was the embarkation point of a quest for, you know, music that soothes that savage beast in me. I love it. And with that, we are listening to Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> here we go.
Can I leave you with one quick thing I just remembered? Please, I would love it. And it was such a joy to witness you. (laughs) (laughs) We got done lifting weights one day during winter break. And I forget what we were listening to, but heavy metal something. And this, this parent came up to me. I don't remember who it was. And they said, you know, the surgeon sub said that music ruins your nervous system. And I said, well, maybe that's why I can live in India for years and you can barely handle two weeks. <laughs> and walked off. <laughs> I don't know why I remembered that. I just did. <laughs> oh, I love it. And on that note, I actually want you to share. Remember that you, you told me this funny story around talking direct and truthful or uh, what felt like grounded and how you heard Guru Amrit saying something fluffy and spiritual. And I, I you oh. could, it was so funny. It was. Uh, we were in um, Hazur Sahib for the anniversary of uh, uh, the death of Guru Gobind Singh. And there was a large gathering and there was hundreds of thousands of people there. And so, you know, big events and gurdwaras. And we were having a, a discussion among the Yatra, the Americans, like, you know, how do we, who sits on the stage? Who doesn't? Do we make room? And Guru Amrit was explaining that, you know, there wasn't room on the stage for all of us and that we had to, um, we had to be discerning about who got on the stage and who didn't. And somebody said, well, how do we know? And to which Guru Amrit said, that we should all use our, quote, sovereign Khalsa spiritual intuitiveness <laughs> to figure that out. And my reaction was to whip out my BlackBerry and type that up real quick so that I never forgot that because there was no way I was just going to remember that line. And uh, yeah, that was that was one of those moments. I, I don't do well with things like that. Is <laughs> that all my sarcasm? You know? Language that's saying a lot and absolutely saying nothing. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's another, another thing about me. I just, I I can't just, just say it, just be direct, say it and, and be done with it. You don't have to window dress it. Well, I appreciate everything you said, everything you've shared, the lens that you gave us, the span of time that you gave us all of it. And thank you for just giving us, um, an entry into you. You're very welcome. Thank you for for making this possible for even, you know, creating this opportunity for people to come and, and, and tell their stories. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you to our guest, Sri. You're welcome. <laughs>